My journey is beginning. A journey that I hope will open the doors of life to me and link my past with my future. A journey that will bring me to a strange and dark place. To the edge of the sea, high atop Widow's Hill. A house called Collinwood. A world I've never known, with people I've never met. People who tonight are still only shadows in my mind, but who will soon fill the days and nights of my tomorrows. WordPress.com and KCCinephile.com. I'm really looking forward to this. The, the whole plan behind this was that Richard knew about Dark Shadows but had never really watched it, and I am a lifelong fan, so we'll see how far down the rabbit hole we go. It's an awful lot to cover in such a short time, but I think we'll, ha- we'll make a good episode out of it. It was a daunting experience, to say the least, but, I, you know, I will... Just add this disclaimer right up front, and then we'll kind of backpedal from it, but I enjoyed my journey down the rabbit hole. Uh, it definitely is a place I'm going to go back to again. I'm kind of surprised it's taken me this long, but I know that really I think the first time I would have even had an opportunity to watch Dark Shadows was in the 90s when it was on Sci-Fi Channel. And I didn't have Sci-Fi Channel right when it launched, and so I think by the time I had access to it, they were wrapping up their run of Dark Shadows. So I think I only saw maybe a handful of episodes before they, they took it off the air. So, And it really doesn't get played on television, really. I don't think uh, other than the Decades channel does play it from time to time. So, uh, And I had an experience to watch that. We'll talk about that last October, which kind of got me interested in it and, and led me to say, let's make that commitment. Let's go down the rabbit hole. And I had a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun with it. So my word alone wasn't enough to get you interested in it. You had to have a little taste yourself to, to mm. want to go back for a second. I don't think that we had talked about Dark Shadows really much before I had a chance to see this. I think I mentioned that I was seeing Dark Shadows. And I think that was the first time you're like, Probably. oh, really? Yeah. I think I had seen the stuff on the wall in your basement or whatever. But I, I you know, that was my first time really seeing consecutive episodes because decades is a uh, it's a digital over the air channel that uh, we don't actually have here in Kansas City but they will do like theme weeks and play like weekends and they were doing a dark shadows weekend the weekend before halloween and so friday saturday sunday nonstop they were doing dark shadows episodes one after the other 24 hours a day and so that whole weekend uh, sporadically during the day on Friday and late evenings when I was going to bed, um, I was popping in and watching Dark Shadows and, and getting a taste for what was going on. And, and uh, I loved it. 
didn't quite know exactly the storyline and of course skipping around a lot over the course of three days. But again, it interested me enough. And I had had the 50th anniversary collector's edition DVD for a while that I was just afraid to dive into because I was just like, oh, there's so much back history. This is too much. But I had purchased this because, you know, it was relatively cheap. I figured it would give me a good taste for the series. And that is what I used for this episode in an attempt anyway to try to to dive into the series as best I could. And with pros and cons that we'll talk about, uh, the set's a good teaser, but not without a few publications along the way. Sure, sure. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear you liked it. I would be very disappointed, honestly, if you didn't. So good for you. <laughs> uh, before we get there, though, we do have some old business, and we have our first bit of feedback, actually. Christopher Page called and left us a, well, actually, he sent an MP3, which is a great way to contact us and give feedback. You can also call us at uh, our phone number, 616-649-CLUB. That's 616-649-2582. And Christopher Page was our first person. Let's take a listen to what he has to say about one of our previous episodes. Hello, Rich and Jeff. Christopher from the Shameless Plug Warning, the Time Shifters podcast, and Orphan Entertainment podcast. By the time you hear this, the episode of the Time Shifters podcast, oh, whoops, there's another plug, uh, that the two of you were so good to join me on will have dropped. Thanks again for taking the time to talk with me. It was a great conversation and turned into a great episode. I've enjoyed your show a lot. I've gone back and listened to a few of your older episodes, and I wanted to comment on one in particular. Episode 4, I think it was, you covered The Amazing Colossal Man and War of the Colossal Beast. And you mentioned uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000, since that is one of the few ways you can legally watch either film. And I might be wrong, but I think I glanced over a news article that was saying that that may not be the case any longer either. So it looks like Susan Hart and her lawyers may be clamping down on all the AIP films that were covered on the show. Damn shame on all the AIP library films. But that's another discussion, and for another time. Let's focus on your episode number four. Let me start with the Mystery Science Theater. I have a love-hate relationship with that show. I'll be the first to admit that all through the 90s I watched every week and laughed my butt off at the antics of Joel, later Mike, the bots, and the mads. Even though I've grown more appreciative of the older and often lower-budgeted films, many of which were covered on MST, I still watch some episodes from time to time and enjoy them. I've discovered that for the most part, the jokes are not directly aimed at the film itself, but rather are playing along with it. The crew of MST are excellent at using the film, the dialogue, the action on the screen to set up a joke that's kind of unrelated to the film. It's often topical, sometimes self-referential, but never really at the movie or at the expense of the filmmakers. Now, the hate part. What I hate is that the show has given rise to an audience that is not as talented at their riffing and is not as adept at keeping on the correct side of what I'll admit to being a gray and fuzzy line. They also have taken this riffing beyond their living rooms and feel it is somehow allowed to share their hilarious jokes with the general public in public venues. Now check your local comedy club for open mic night and tell your jokes there. Leave the talking in the movie theaters to the films themselves. Thank you very much. Now, on Amazing Colossal Man, I was watching, again, the MST version of the film, and since I had seen it a few times before, I found myself kind of ignoring the trio at the bottom of the screen, and started focusing on the film itself. 
It was then that I began to notice a lot more of the film than I thought was there before. Watching Glenn struggle with his constant growing, it struck me that this film could easily be an allegory for what one might go through if they suddenly lost their sight or their hearing, or woke up after an accident to find they could no longer walk. And World War II was just over a decade ago at that point, and the Korean War had ended just four years prior to Colossal Man's release. A lot of young soldiers had come home missing limbs, and many went through the depressions and feelings of anger that Glenn exhibited in the film. And just like in the film, they were not the only victim. The friends and family suffered along with them, even when trying everything they could to help make it work. You know, looking at the movie in that light, it quickly becomes a lot more than just another Bird Eye Gordon making something big movie. I can't say as much for War of the Colossal Beasts. I think that one is, is more flash and less substance. Well, I've kept you long enough. Again, ha, I'm sure you have better things to do and things to talk about. Thanks for listening and keep up the great work. Oh, yeah. And uh, listeners, more Rich and Jeff over at TimeShifterspodcast.com. Thank you very much, Christopher. And uh, I think we've said it before, but I'll say it again. We certainly enjoyed being on your podcast, the Time Shifters podcast. That was a lot of fun. And uh, I appreciate you inviting us on there. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And, and I, this is great. Let's start getting some feedback. I, we know people are listening. Um, and and it's always a little daunting with, with getting feedback to us, um, taking that first step. But once you kind of take that first step, then you kind of become... Uh, a regular, you know, provider of feedback, and and that's what we we love. Send it our way. As you said, they can they can call that number. They can also send an MP3 via email. Uh, we're, we know a lot of people on Facebook. If you want to contribute to the show, if you've got some thoughts, reach out to us. Get an MP3 to us, and we'll get it on the show. Absolutely. Old business. We do have some things I want to address from last time. We'll just breeze through these real quick. Nobody may care, but you know how it haunts me when we have a dangling piece of information out there. So in our last episode, which was about Frankenstein, the true story, we wondered how many seasons Mission Impossible ran. It was seven, in fact. We wondered when did the Waltons begin. And uh, Rich, you were right. The Homecoming did show, well, actually you were wrong. You thought maybe 72. The Homecoming aired in December of 71, and the series The Waltons began the next year in September of 1972. Uh, we also wondered uh, the fact that it was a miniseries, was it one of the first? When did Roots air? And that was actually not till 1977. So the fact that Frankenstein, The True Story aired in 73, it was technically an early example of the television miniseries. And then Thornbirds wasn't even till the 80s, 1983. I think by that time there had been like Shogun and then miniseries were popping up all the time, usually during the ratings month. Yes. Um, and I that was just a big staple of the 80s. And I think that died out in the 90s. I think the, the idea of the miniseries, I'm not sure the reason why, other than just maybe the change in viewing habits. By that point, cable was really kicking into gear and... and Networks weren't doing made-for-TV movies, really, by that point. I think they continued to make them into the 80s, but by the end of the 80s on into the 90s, I mean, made-for-TV movies were just rarity. And that, essentially, a miniseries is just a really long movie. So you just, yeah, and even now, we don't you don't get miniseries very rarely. Right. We wondered how old Sting was when The Bride was made. He was 34 years old. See, that's... 
that's information people cannot live without. We must share that when we, when we know, get did, that. Did we talk about hey, Did you see that in the theaters? When I did. I did, too. I was a big, huge Police Sting fan at that I time. was, too. That's exactly what, what drew me to that. I was like, I've got to see this movie. And I remember liking it, but uh, I think I've only seen it maybe once since then. And I... I think that I have it in my collection, but I don't know if I've ever actually watched it. I think I picked it up mm. dirt cheap for a couple bucks somewhere and, and have never watched it. So I, I need to go back and revisit that. Yeah, I've, I have it. I've seen it a couple times. It's been a long time, though, since I've seen it. Uh, David McCollum, one of the actors in Frankenstein, The True Story, was in a TV series called Sapphire and Steel, and we kind of wondered what that was. Well, that was actually a British series uh, that ran from 79 to 82. It was six six series that they call them overseas, you know, so it, it may have only been uh, six episodes or, or such in that because uh, 79 to 82, if you do your math, isn't really six years. So over the course of that, and it sounds very interesting. Here's, here's the synopsis of it. It's a complex, involved science fiction series about a special force of interdimensional operatives whose task it is to protect the universe from evil forces trying to gain a foothold by disrupting the timeline. So. I've never seen that. I've read about it. I've never, it's never been released in the States, I don't believe. And I don't think that it's ever really played anywhere here in the States that I'm familiar with. If it has, it's kind of come and gone very, very quickly. So. Yeah, I, I had never heard of it. Uh, we wondered about Michael Wilding, who was in Frankenstein, The True Story. His name was familiar. We didn't know why. I think I said... I thought he was one of Elizabeth Taylor's husbands. He was. He was her second husband out of how many? Several. Several? <laughs> eight? Seven? Eight, oh, no. No, let's no that, that's Zsa Zsa. That's, oh, that's right. Sorry. If we speculate, we'll have to do that next time. So yeah, let's just feedback let's on leave the feedback it back or yes, yes. loose ends. We wondered when Bewitched ended its run. I don't remember why, but 1972. March of 72 is when it ended its run. I had forgot we talked about that. Someone posted a thing on Facebook yesterday. What's your favorite bewitched uh, Elizabeth Montgomery hairstyle? <laughs> and you could certainly see the 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 journey from the mid sixties, you know, leftover nineteen fifties hairstyle. By the time that she's she's pretty hip, borderline hippie. By the time you get to the end of that run, so I know why we were wondering that because Agnes Moorhead was in Frankenstein: The True yes. Story, and that would have been she would have filmed that. Probably right as Bewitched was ending. Indeed, yeah. So I have an interesting transition here from what we talked about last time, Frankenstein, The True Story, to what we're going to talk about today, Dark Shadows. And that is, and I didn't run across this anywhere, I don't believe, when we were researching Frankenstein, The True Story, but Dan Curtis, the mastermind behind Dark Shadows, actually produced a Frankenstein miniseries the same year that Frankenstein, The True Story, came out. It came. It was aired earlier in the year, in January, whereas The True Story aired in November. But uh, it aired January 16th and 17th on a Tuesday and Wednesday. It had, a well, a handful of Dark Shadows people involved. He Dan Curtis did not direct it, but he wrote it uh, with Sam Hall, who was one of the big writers on Dark Shadows. John Carlin was in it. He played Willie Loomis, among other characters in Dark Shadows. Bob Colbert did the music, if you can count it, because they used mostly music from Dark Shadows. <laughs> and also another miniseries that Dan Curtis did, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Actually, now I don't think any of the music was original, but 
uh, it was in this. It starred Robert Foxworth as Frankenstein, Bose Vinson as the monster, and Susan Strasberg as Elizabeth. Seeing Svensson's name, I am from. I've seen this talked about before. I've never seen it, but this I remember reading about. I'm thinking Bo Svensson as the monster. To me, it just doesn't click. As and they actually call him the giant in this. But uh, so I had just run across I don't know where Dan Curtis Frankenstein, and I was like, "What is this?" And uh, yeah, I vaguely remember Robert Foxworth and Bo Svensson. I did not know it's from Dan Curtis. It was actually part of a series called Wide World of Mystery. So you can't even find it on like IMDb under Frankenstein or Dan Curtis Frankenstein. Mm. It's as an episode of Wide World of Mystery on ABC. I did watch it this week, and it's okay. It's more like a live production, sort of. It's shot on video. It's a lot of sets, interior. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm curious for you to see it. And shoot, I should have brought it for you, but it... It just reminds you of Dark Shadows. I mean, not only the music, but the style. And this was 73, so it was um, a year after Dark Shadows had ended. Is that right? Dark Shadows ended in 72, right? I I should know. I'm supposed to be leading you through, and I can't even remember. 71. 71, 71, yeah. So this is a couple years after. I I don't know. It's, It's an interesting relic. It's not very good, but I enjoyed it. And Bo Svensson actually makes a compelling um, creature or giant for I'd Monster. Like, I, I kind of liked him. I'd like to see it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's our bridge from last episode to this one. Uh, and I thought we could just talk for a minute about Dan Curtis. He is the one that created Dark Shadows. What is your knowledge of this man, Richard? Anything outside of Dark Shadows? Well, um, definitely familiar with his his work, at least at the at the start. Of, uh, of the Kolchak series, the, the first uh, two movies, uh, The Night Stalker and The Night Strangler, uh, which don't get seen as much as the, as the series itself. The series, if I remember correctly, I don't think he had anything to do with the series, the, uh, the Kolchak series, but he had this, the, the first two movies, and they're essentially the same. I, I remember there's a change of locale. I can't remember where he moves to when the series starts, but essentially, it's the, it's a continuation of the first two movies. They just move him into a different newspaper in a different city. Kolchak is is classic, you know, television right. and, and MeTV. At least as of this past summer, they were playing Kolchak on Sunday nights. First time in a while that I've seen that on regular television. Uh, I'm looking at this list. Um, yeah, and before we even get to this, so Dan Curtis was a big time television producer and. He got his start, actually, he's credited for bringing golf to television. <laughs> he, I did not know. Yes, he and he made a boatload of money doing that. So that was how he got his power, his money to do whatever he wanted. Supposedly he had a dream about a woman riding on a train coming to this strange town, and that was the genesis of Dark Shadows. I've always really wondered how much he contributed to the story, or if it was his writer's. The idea certainly came from him, and he he uh, he always denied that it was horror, and he he said it was he was bringing the gothic literature you know into the series, which I do believe because he's done a lot of projects that were ad- adaptations of uh, literature, not only Frankenstein that we mentioned, Doctor Jekyll, Mister Hyde. He did a terrific version of Dracula with Jack Palance, which is, is very arguably one of the better 
adaptations, I believe. Jack Palance is great in that. And he I is. never, never would have thought that. But I would agree. It's underrated. It's underrated. Yeah. Uh, the Norlis tapes, have you seen that? I have. I did long, long time ago. Um, that's got um, mine gone, going blank here, but the guy from The Invaders, Roy Thinnis, was intended, you could clearly see, it's intended to be a pilot for a potential series that didn't get picked up. Uh, so it's a made-for-TV movie, so it runs 75 minutes long without commercials, so really easy just to breeze your way through it. Yeah, highly recommend you, tr- you track that one down. That's a lot of fun. I want to say that was covered many, many years ago on the B-Movie cast, oh. uh, which is how I got exposed to it. And he did that in 73. He did that after the first two Kolchak uh, movies. So I definitely recommend that. Scream of the Wolf was a, a made-for-TV movie, if I remember yes. correctly. Yes. One of those great like trilogy of terror. Yeah, and I want to say, I think that it's public domains. I think it pops up mm. on, the, on the public domain sets quite frequently. I believe I've seen it. I don't know if I necessarily was blown away by it. I'm trying to remember. If I've seen it, it's not sticking to me, which tells me that I didn't hate it, but it was kind of, you know forgettable which unfortunately probably what at least 50 percent of of public domain movies on those sets are not necessarily horrible but they're kind of forgettable and that's that kind of you know unless i'm mistaking i think that's where it kind of falls into yeah so he did a lot of horror up to 1977 at these tv movies uh curse of the black widow burnt offerings yeah, and then he did theatrically. He did Burnt Offerings, which I love that movie. That's I did a too. Fantastic movie. Yeah. Um, so he, he and then towards the end of that period, he kind of did a, a couple of non-genre things. He did a movie, TV movie called The Great Ice Ripoff, Kansas City Massacre, Melvin Purvis, G-Man. But it all changed in 1983 when he made The Winds of War. Big miniseries. And I actually thought that was the one that had gotten all the acclaim, but it was actually War in Remembrance. So Winds of War, he made in 1983. He uh, produced and directed. And then five years later, War in Remembrance. And that was the big one that won uh, Outstanding Miniseries at the Emmys. He wrote, directed, and produced that. And I'll never forget that. I actually watched that live. I not. I actually have never seen uh, War and Remembrance, it was what, like 100 parts or something? And, very long. Yeah, but I remember his Emmy speech. It was very short, he, and he was a very gruff man. He, he was larger than life. I, I suppose if he hadn't been on this show, he would have had a big old cigar in his mouth, but he walks up there, his jacket's probably undone, he goes to the mic, and he thanks ABC for ponying up the dough to make <laughs> War and Remembrance. That was his acceptance speech, and very memorable. Uh, I'll never forget it. So this this is Dan Curtis, the the man behind Dark Shadows, larger than life, lots of money to do whatever he wanted, and thank goodness he wanted to do something like Dark Shadows. Before we get into it, let's take a quick break. Uh, I've got an ad to play actually for uh, the Dan Curtis Frankenstein and uh, a couple other fun little things about Dark Shadows, and when we come back, we will uh, dig into it. Sounds good. Wide World Mystery. Tonight, suspense, drama. With my heart, you will. The classic horror of Frankenstein. Starring Robert Foxworth, Susan Strasberg, and 
Bo Svensson. Frankenstein. This is Jonathan Fritz. I would like to thank you personally for having purchased this very special bonus package of all the Dark Shadows kits. In doing so, you have given me the opportunity of saying a few words to you. You know, playing the part of Barnabas Collins on Dark Shadows can be a very difficult job at times. There's so many lines to memorize every day. And I, as Barnabas, get so deeply involved with all the other characters that, well, I sometimes wonder when it's day and when it's night. And that can be a very dangerous situation for a vampire. <laughs> we are back. So everyone probably knows Dark Shadows was unusual at the time. We've got a little history about soap operas at the time, but certainly one that had the themes and the storylines that it did were, were definitely new and, and not seen before. But what were people used to watching uh, on television uh, during that time? Well, you got to remember, the, these, uh, this time period is before the days of cable. So you had essentially three networks that most people watched, ABC, NBC, CBS. PBS, of course, ran mostly... Uh, arts and crafts and children's programming during the day back then. And there was only one PBS channel. So um, soap operas were incredibly big and had been a leftover from the days of old-time radio. The Guiding Light uh, had started off on CBS radio. It had 15 years run on on old-time radio before it made the transition to CBS television in 1952. One of the other earliest uh, television soap operas was on ABC. It was The Edge of Night, which started in 1956. By the time you get to the 60s, there, I mean, that, that was the bulk of the daytime programming was you had random uh, game shows, usually in the, in the early to, well, about mid-morning. By the time you got to 10.30, 11 a.m. Central Time, it was soap opera time. And that would go until at least 3 or 3.30 in the afternoon. Every network did them. And other than maybe a break for the news uh, at high noon, that was, just, that was part of the daily programming. Back then, of course, a lot of uh, women were still at, at you know, stay-at-home moms. And that was what they watched. And, and back in this time frame, Dark Shadows was on its own. It was the only show that was doing anything out of the ordinary ABC, Edge of Night was really big at this time. General Hospital, One Life to Live. CBS, of course, Guiding Light was huge. As the World Turns. NBC had Days of Our Lives, Another World, The Doctors. Uh, There was a lot of soap operas around this time period. I think it was probably the most prevalent time for soap operas. Dark Shadows is, is so unique and I think that contributes. I mean, of course, they, they tackled a lot of tough storylines that we'll, we'll dive into here in a moment. But I think that contributed to why, in the big scheme of things, it had a relatively short run compared to other soap operas. It was attempting to appeal to a, a fragment of its of the potential audience. And a lot of the typical stay-at-home moms didn't really want to sit and watch some of the crazy storylines. They want to watch the doctor, you know, uh, the good-looking doctor at the uh, at the fake hospital, 
you know, have an affair with so-and-so and this and that, which is the typical soap opera storyline. Dark Shadows was definitely anything but typical in that regard. But we must remember it was a soap opera. I mean, it definitely had the structure of oh, absolutely. cliffhangers yeah. and it had the romances and just with werewolves and vampires and zombies. And ironically, it's I think it is more well-loved today. I think a lot of the soap operas back then, I mean, certainly you're not buying 50th anniversary DVD sets of those and there's not websites about them. And, and in fact, a few websites that I found listing the top soap operas of the 60s and 70s, Dark Shadows was number one on both lists. Now, ratings perspective, it might not have always been because it was typically um, around 12 or 13 in the ratings as far as like daytime programming. So it wasn't really anywhere. I don't even know if it ever cracked the top 10. If it did, it was very briefly... But it certainly wasn't the lowest rated soap opera, but it, it definitely was towards the bottom. And I, I want to talk about the ratings for a minute because that played into the, the history of the show. You know, you think these days, or at least a few years ago when network TV was the big thing, and I'd like a show and they'd cancel it. And I just felt like this, the networks were the most impatient people in the world that they couldn't let a show grow and build. Still are. Well, <laughs> yeah, and I think they were then too because... I mean, the show that was on before Dark Shadows, which I'll come back and describe in a minute, was on for nine months before it was canceled. Dark Shadows came on. It was going about nine months, was about to be canceled. And, you know, what do you have to lose at that point? You you throw something at the wall and see if it sticks. Well, they brought a freaking vampire on the show, and the ratings started going up. At the peak of its... And that isn't even at its peak. I mean, it grew, and I think when... Quentin Collins joined. It was at its peak in the 1840 storyline. Again, we'll talk about that. But it was a, a phenomenon. But it was kids running home from school. I don't know how many people you may have heard say, oh yeah, Dark Shadows. I used to run home from school and watch it because it was on at 3 or 3.30. I did. That's exactly what I did. That was who it became popular with, which as you were saying is not housewives, you know. So it's all very fascinating. But ultimately, ratings is what got Dark Shadows. And I, we've, I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, why we think that the ratings eventually slid. And I think that's why I, I miss that that generation because I'm a little bit younger, not much, but enough that I wasn't really watching daytime television. I mean, I was born in '67. And so by the time the show ended in 71, I was, you know, what, three years, three years old. I do remember watching soap operas with my mom. I have vivid memories of a, of a series called Somerset that had, yeah, it was a spinoff of Another World. And they had a storyline with Jingles the Clown. And it was someone, it had to do with like they were trying to make somebody sick in the house and they believed this girl was was imagining seeing this Jingles the Clown. And I remember vividly the afternoon that you finally saw that Jingles was real. You'd hear this little jingling of a bell, <laughs> but you'd never see the clown. And then when they finally revealed it was someone in full-blown clown regalia, it terrified the living heck out of me. And I remember that following that, my mom would have to, you know, keep an eye on the TV. And when the the jingle 
that came on, you know, as soon as the clown appeared, she told me to close my eyes. And I, I have vivid memories of that. Yeah, bizarre. So there were some odd storylines that would pop up from time to time in daytime soaps, but nothing to the extreme that, that Dark Shadows did. But I miss that. And because there's so many episodes, it's not an easy series to replay. Uh, it's a it's it's a it's a huge commitment, which is why I think that it's a series that has more life than almost well, I think virtually every other soap opera that's ever been created. But when you compare it to any other sci-fi or horror series, it is tough to to commit to because you're dealing with more than a thousand episodes. You're not just dealing with six or seven seasons. You're dealing with you know more than a thousand episodes, and so you it's daunting. It's like oh, this is a huge time commitment. This isn't just six or seven seasons of twenty episodes per season. This is a full blown time commitment. But I think it's a testament that you know again, I don't think there really is any rewatchability in any old soap opera. Retro TV, which is kind of like Me TV and Antenna TV. They do play the doctors at like two in the morning, and I don't know who the heck would watch it at two in the morning. I see it on the listings, and I'm like, you know, I'm sure somebody somewhere is watching it. But it makes me think that someone should make the effort of of playing Dark Shadows from beginning to end. And I think you would have a lot of people that would that would commit to it that way. It's a little less daunting. If you know, okay, well, this is one episode a day. It's it's serialized. Yeah, this is going to be a commitment over time. But maybe they do two episodes a day or something. It would be a little less daunting. But it's it's a time commitment, and I think that's what scares a lot of people away. Yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, I have the beautiful coffin set that has every episode. That is nice. And last year was the anniversary. Uh, I guess that would have been, what, 50th anniversary? Is that what our DVD is? 50th? Yes. So I thought, all right, I am going to start and I'm going to watch it in real time. I'm going to watch on the you know anniversary of 50 years ago of when it first aired. And I got about 25 episodes. It's just, in this day and age, it is hard to keep up and make that commitment, even when you have them there in your hand and can watch them when you want to. I think it's just like, um, I, I think the... Easiest comparison is Doctor Who. Doctor Who is a show that started in 63, ran consecutively until 89, and then picked up again and has been running consecutively since 2005. If you've never seen a Doctor Who episode, you know, it's a huge commitment to say, well, okay, here you go, start in this episode and work your way through. It's, it's tough. Uh, and as with any series, there's high points and low points, good and bad episodes. But it, it's it's even Star Trek is six or seven seasons. But at least then you kind of know what you're dealing with, and it's kind of a finite number. But with anything that's like, well, yeah, this started in the '60s and ran through the '70s and the '80s, and and it's still running on TV now. It scares people away. From '63 to '89, an average episode, well, an episode runs 25 minutes long. An average storyline would run anywhere from four to six episodes. You know, so you could you could watch you know four to six episodes, and your storyline would be complete. And then the next episode starts the next four or six episode block of episodes. <laughs> 
So I'm showing Richard a graphic, and I think I'll post it in our show notes. Uh, I saw this somewhere, but it's a, a warning sign. It says, warning, this person may talk about Doctor Who at any time. And as you know, at least once per episode, we've got a reason to talk about it. All things lead to Doctor Who. And I, you know, I have to admit, as, as I was watching this, that was one thing. I, I compared it a lot to Doctor Who as far as the, the serialized nature and the production values. Although with Doctor Who, I will say, I think that even though their production values were, were pretty sketchy in the early days, I do think, I've, I've never seen, I know that there is, I think there's the, the occasional random boom mic that pops up in Doctor Who, and the running joke for years has been the wobbly sets and stuff, but I've never seen anyone lurking in the back shadows of a shot on Doctor Who, and then immediately kind of leave the scene real quick and i know we'll talk about that I, it's a it's actually something i loved about dark shadows it, it added to me a certain amount of charm it was not a turnoff to me to see the boom mic or to see the person holding the boom mic or to see the random crew member in the back uh pop up into view i think that's that's fantastic it, to me it made me smile whenever I would see that. It didn't It didn't turn me away from it. And here's the thing about that. I was going to say it later, but I'll just say it now. So this was taped live. They didn't stop for edits, and it aired. Now, the only reason we're even sitting here talking about Dark Shadows today is because of Dan Curtis. He owned the show. He kept the tapes. I believe other soap operas at that time you couldn't find if you wanted to because no one kept them. There was no reason to. Yeah, I mean, you're running a show five days a week. There's no resale value. There's there's no rewatchability for, for a show, especially if it's still running. You do get random things in, in archives and stuff, and I think certainly in the last several decades, I think they're, they're keeping these things. It's a lot easier, right? To keep, you know, you don't have to keep a, a tape on a shelf somewhere. It's a lot easier to store it digitally and it exists, but yeah, most soap operas from that time period, 50s, 60s and 70s, it's, it's hard to find clips from that show. And, and if you do, it's typically from someone who randomly recorded it off air. And those few people who had, you know, a, a VCR that weighed, you know, the, the what, uh, it was the, the size of a Volkswagen and then weighed about as much. You just don't get a lot of live television clips or, or shows like that. This don't exist. And if you hear interviews with any of the, the surviving cast members, they all say nobody thought anyone would ever watch it again. So I guess my point is, sure, I'm, I'm sure they want to do a quality show, but that just... You know, if there was a mistake, they didn't think anyone would ever see it. And I think that's, you know, that's, you don't have the time to sit there and, and redo it. And, as, and like I said, it added to the charm for me. I, I It made me smile. It made me chuckle a few times. You're looking at a, at a crypt and there's only two people in and the door has been closed and they're locked in. And there's the guy in the blue shirt lurking in the background. And, I, you know, and it's like, I'm sure someone told him off screen, you need to get out. <laughs> And all you see is his back, and then he just kind of waddles his way out of the shot, and and the and the boom mics that are always popping up, uh, you know, which I think is is just a lot of fun. That pops up on Doctor Who. You will see boom mics on there again. Doctor Who was filmed in much the same way, not as rushed, but in, in the first few seasons of Doctor Who, they ran almost one episode a week for the entire year. 
those seasons were were long seasons. They they ran 42, 45 episode or forty five episodes in a season, one episode per week. They they were filming nonstop, and and you know by the time they did all their minimal special effects and stuff, it was time to do the next episode. Didn't have a lot of time to sit back and, and go back and re-edit. William Hartnell, who plays the first Doctor, is notorious for flubbing his lines, and they just they had to go with the flow. And you watch those early episodes, and, and you can see that that you know just the flubbing of the lines, and you get that in Dark Shadows. Oh yeah, I'm sure we'll talk about that. So I just want to touch on one uh, on the soap opera that was on before Dark Shadows aired. It was called Never Too Young. It had some of the people from Dark Shadows involved. Ron Sprout, uh, who was a writer on Dark Shadows, he's sort of the one credited for creating the character of Barnabas Collins. He he wrote for the show. Tony Dow was oh, wow. on it from Leave It to Beaver. It took place in Malibu. It, it, there was a beach hangout called the High Dive, and it was the first... Uh, soap really targeted at a young audience but it only lasted nine months it's sort of ironic that a show like that couldn't survive but yet that's exactly the audience that made dark shadows turn out to be such a phenomenon later on in the in the middle of its run but the most interesting thing also about this is this show was executive produced by larry cohen Larry Cohen is uh, the b-movie master who gave us it's alive the stuff Q, The Winged Serpent, all of those movies. So this obviously was early in his career. I just think a lot of interesting things uh, having to do with that. That's what Dark Shadows replaced. What replaced Dark Shadows, sadly, at the end of its run was a game show. All right, let's take a quick break. We have some proactive feedback. Our friend Stephen B. Sullivan, we asked if he... He's a big Dark Shadows fan, and uh, we asked him if he would like to say anything about the show and his attachment to it. So he actually uh, called in. The way to call in is 616-649-CLUB, 616-649-2582. Stephen called in, left a message. Let's hear what he has to say about Dark Shadows, and then uh, we'll come back and dive into it ourselves. Hey, guys. This is Steve Sullivan. So you're doing a Dark Shadows show. Dark Shadows is a huge influence on my life, probably more influential than any TV show, uh, save perhaps Star Trek, and probably more than that, and more influential than any movies except maybe the work of Ray Harryhausen and Willis O'Brien. Anyway, it's been a huge thing in my life, and the words Dark Shadows have appeared in pretty much every, if not every, book I've ever written, and that's over 50 books now, including some that are ghost-written. So those who are fans can spend time looking for that. Obviously, it's in Pushing Horrors. <laughs> I became a fan in around 1968 or 69, fairly early in the show's run, but in the Boston area where I lived, it was not shown in the afternoon where it was supposed to be shown. It was shown early in the morning somewhere, I think, around 9 or 9.30 in the morning, which meant if you were a school kid, you couldn't actually see the show. So, But I discovered it in TV Guide, and it sounded interesting, so I managed to catch, I think, part of one show, and then I I was homesick or home for some reason and decided I would watch it again. And the next time I watched it, there was an episode, it ended with the werewolf's claw materializing as Chris Jennings turned into the werewolf. And I don't remember if we saw his face. I don't think we did, but saw the claw. And from that moment on, 
I was slightest bit of a cold, I would be sick then, so I could stay home and watch it. Eventually, it moved into the afternoon in the Boston area, and it played on two different stations. It played on a station in Boston, and it played on a station in Providence. And we were kind of in between, and they were half an hour skewed. I think one was at 3.30 and one was at 4, maybe. But in any case, you can actually watch the show twice, and eventually, somehow, the two shows got skewed today from each other. So the second show was the show after the earlier show. So you'd watch an hour of Dark Shadows, getting half of a rerun and then a new episode every day. And my brother and I used to come home from school every day and watch Dark Shadows that way. An hour of Dark Shadows every day. Since I didn't see the early stuff, I picked that up later when it was in reruns early on. And I'd say that, that by now, between that and the reruns on the Sci-Fi channel, I think I've seen every Dark Shadows episode twice, at least. And some of them I've seen three, four, five times, and I'm re-watching the show again right now. Well, not right this minute. I'm calling on the phone right this minute. So I've seen them all. I've seen them all multiple times, and I continue to enjoy them, and I will be watching them again. Not only that, but growing up, I had the Dark Shadows games, both of them. I had comic books. We had all sorts of any Dark Shadows-related stuff. We would try to get it, and it was it was really cool. In fact, I still have copies of both those Dark Shadows games, and the uh, the one that's the board game, we actually play every year in October at our game day. And I've recreated the board because the old one was falling apart. So I got a photographer friend, photoshopped the hell out of it, and have a really beautiful board to play on now. And it's a fun game, even for adults, especially, maybe especially for adults, because we're kind of ruthless as we play. Anyway, it's a lot of fun, and it's just part of Dark Shadows in my life. I've got the, all the books that Catherine Lee Scott put out. I've got her autograph on numerous things. In fact, the first autographs that I really collected as an adult were Catherine Lee Scott's and Jonathan Frid's. Happily, I managed to get his just less than a year before he died. So it's, it's great to have those and have them on my wall. It's great to have the books. There was a time when I ordered a book from Pomegranate Press where they didn't have what I wanted. Catherine Lee Scott called me on the phone. That was a thrill of my fanboy life. I was high on that for days. Anyway, I love the show. It's one of those things. It's of its time, certainly, but I think it holds up pretty well, given that it was basically shot live on tape and never had much of a budget. And so it was all kind of done on a wing and a prayer, and they were making it up as they went. And in some ways that shows, but in other ways it's just wonderful. So I hope you guys will enjoy it. I know Rich hasn't really seen much of it, and I hope he'll enjoy it. And, you know, if you've got to start somewhere, it's always good to start with a Barnabas stuff, unless you're really into the gothic soap opera part of it. And that's fun, too. It's, it's a good show end to the end, but it gets great with Barnabas, and then it gets even greater when Quentin shows up and the two of them are together, and we've got the werewolf running around, and oh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful thing. So enjoy it all the way through all the pastiches. Have fun. Dark Shadows Forever. Steve Sullivan. Signing out. You can find my work at CushingHorrors.com and SDSullivan.com. Thank you very much, Steve. That was a great summary that encapsulates a lot of how I feel about Dark Shadows. You probably will save us from repeating some. 
of that information. So thank you very much for contributing. Rich, why don't you tell people a little bit about Steve Sullivan? Steve's a podcast legend, as far as I'm concerned. Steve, I was first introduced to him over at the B-Movie cast, which I think everything always kind of ties back to either that or Derek uh, over at Monster Kid Radio. Steve is 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 the one, if, you, if you've listened to the B-Movie cast, he's the one that started the whole Hey Mary craze. Steve is, is back in the day, he worked for TSR as a writer and artist uh, in the days of Dungeons and Dragons. Um, he was involved in the, uh, the game Pace Setter uh, in the mid-80s. And he really downplayed his writing, but he is re- he, a very prolific writer. He's published. He's an award-winning author. In recent years, he's done adaptations of the uh, Bela Lugosi classic White Zombie. Uh, he did two different versions of Manos, The Hands of Fate, a, a more uh, direct adaptation of the movie, and then a much darker version of it. Um, he's also... Uh, for those of you in the Mimiverse universe, if you got watched any of those great Christopher Mim films, which we'll be talking about at the end of this this show, he has uh, been writing uh, the Canoe Cops uh, series, and recently, uh, what last year, as a matter of fact, had the, that series of stories published. So Steve is is very well known in the podcast community, and I, I almost feel like we've made it when you get Steve Sullivan on your show. It's very very. Uh, Cool to have him on. Thank you, Steve, so much for that uh, fantastic voicemail. And the Cushing Horrors that he mentioned, that's his current project. If you follow him on Patreon, you get uh, the next chapter before anyone else does. And I've been stockpiling them. I am way, way behind. But from what I read, it's really great. It's, it's a big old monster rally, sort of with the style of both Universal and Hammer, and it, it's it's fantastic. And I assume he's going to publish that. I would I would assume eventually it'll be published. He's a monster kid like the rest of us. So he, he is. I know he's a huge Ray Harryhausen fan. And when on Harryhausen's, I think both his birthday and and the anniversary of his death, that's what he watches all day long. And he shares with you on Facebook. I'm watching this one. I'm watching this one. Uh, finally, had a chance to meet Steve last year at the uh, world premiere of uh, Where Skeeto, Nazi Hunter, and uh, we had a chance, both of us had a chance to see him at Monster Bash, and we'll have a chance again in uh, just a little more than a month as we're recording this, and, what, a month and two days, I believe, uh, we'll have a chance to see him again up in uh, Minnesota for the uh, premiere of the new Christopher Mim film, which we will again be talking more about at the end of this week's episode. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. A great guy and uh, looking forward to getting to know him better. Let's dig in. And we talked earlier about, uh, or and, and Steve even recommended how to start. And I really think you have to break it up into storylines it sort of falls that way naturally because there are big chunks of stories that take place in different time periods. There were flashbacks where a large chunk of episodes would take place and it would go back to present. And I think that's the natural way to divide it. The tricky part is that within each of those, there are the various soap opera storylines going on. And that's probably where most of the confusion would lie uh, looking at it as a whole, rather than just kind of stepping back and putting the the storylines in an order that makes sense. 
anniversary disc that had the the key episodes are samplings from most of the storylines. And Richard, I think you watched them pretty much. There's three discs. There's the best of Barnabas, the best of Angelique, and fan favorites. We were able best to make of Quentin as well. Oh, so four of them, right? Those are each in order, but you sort of have to mix and match those if you want to go chronologically, if you're a, a stickler for that, which can you imagine if you hadn't gone chronologically and you were trying to watch them? I, it, I would have not been able to get more than a handful of episodes in without like raising the white flag. You gave me a, a wonderful list that told me the episode number uh, and the disc to find it on. Now, going into this relatively blind knowing a little bit about you know the show's history i certainly know knew who barnabas was but i hadn't really seen much beyond my my sampling of it last october so diving into it this way it, it was daunting the early probably the first half of this disc and, and this is a good disc to get if you can still get it i'm not sure if it's out of print or if it's available because it, it does give you a lot I mean, it's like more than 21 hours of programming. And I think I paid maybe 15 for the DVD. is really cheap. So it has, the besides the four compilations that I mentioned, which are actually just a collection of episodes featuring the character or that were fan favorites, there are also two that are actually compilations of clips from a bunch of episodes put together to make, what, three-hour movies? Yeah, the the uh, the Vampire Curse covered three hours and five minutes. And uh, you get the credits at the beginning and at the end of that, but you don't get all the in, the individual credits. So it saves a lot of recaps and time. And it still does skip around. The biggest problem diving into this disc is the fact that you're watching a soap opera. And so you're watching episode 366 and then the very next chronological one on the list for example and i don't have the list in front of me but you might be taking a 20 or 30 episode leap and sometimes you're only taking one or two episodes and that's where in the first half of the list it was relatively easy to follow because there wasn't there there were leaps and i had questions but there wasn't a huge leap for some reason, as they get to around maybe midway through the episodes, they start taking some pretty big leaps, 50, 60, 70 episode leaps. That hurts, The really trying to get a feel. You just get into the storyline, because they run roughly about 21 minutes, and then all of a sudden, you know, then it's like, okay, what's the next episode? Oh, well, we're 60 episodes later. This is, I recommend this disc as as a sampling to see if you like what Dark Shadows is. It's it's something that you're going to come away from it and you're going to say, I like it, or you don't. And if you do, then you need to take the next step and get, I think, the complete run and just make that commitment and say, you know what, for the next five years, I'm going to work my way through or whatever. And that's, I'll say right now, I want to get the set. I've got a huge long list of things I want to watch, just like all of us do. But this is something that's on my radar. I want to do it because even though these episodes skipped around a lot, I get a, I got a feel for what some of these great storylines were. The three-hour omnibus, The Vampire's Curse, I watched that after having watched the random sampling of episodes that this disc had. 
And so I, I, I remembered some of the scenes and such. There was also a lot of explanation because some of the questions I had while watching that storyline, I'm like, well, what happened to this? And how did this happen? And it, it, it does. Like, there's still some pretty big leaps, but it does give you almost a three-hour movie. And you do get a, a pretty good gist of the, of the story, uh, how he became a vampire, the relationship he had with Josette and, and with Angelique. And, and I think that that's almost might have been a better way to... I should have probably seen that first and then attempted to make my way through the individual episodes. And that's what I would recommend anybody who gets this set. Watch the three-hour omnibus editions of of the vampire curse and and the haunting of collinwood before diving into the individual episodes because you'll have a better feel i think for the characters after having watched six hours of a more cohesive two separate storylines rather than just a lot of random episodes which skips around a lot and i have a couple comments to make on the set so first of all i don't really like their uh, compilations, The Vampire's Curse and The Haunting of Hollywood, of Collinwood. <sighs> to me, they'll feature big chunks of episodes and then little snippets from others. I don't think it was constructed very evenly to give the whole story and to fill in the gaps. And me being as anal as I am, and I did this a long time ago, way before Classic Horrors, I had my other blog, I constructed my own little scenes Having access to all the episodes, I made videos that were posted on there, and I'm going to post them on Classic Horse Club has a YouTube channel. I'm going to move them over to there. But I made my own introduction to Barnabas Collins, all of the scenes. And they're, you know, 10, 15 minutes. You can do it in that little of time. You don't, and I think it tells a more complete story, actually, than watching three hours. That's my opinion. It is a great way to be introduced, but I would like to encourage people to go to the YouTube channel and see the videos that um, I put on there because they even be more bite-sized chunks, but you would still get, I believe, a good idea. That's the way if I were making these that I would do it. So for whatever that's worth. And th- there were just some pretty big leaps as you're watching this. I mean, it's just kind of like, so the, this, this, the character of Barnabas Collins, maybe we should kind of take a step back yeah, and talk about the characters. So, and, and if, I would still like to talk about these under the big story arcs. So, like, and we'll breeze through this first one very quickly. We already mentioned that Barnabas didn't even come on for nine months. So, you know, what happened during that first... It was in actual time. It was 1966 and 67. Victoria Winters comes. You, now, you did watch the first episode, too. So I watched the first episode just to say I, I watched it knowing that Barnabas wasn't in it, knowing that it's going to, you know, by the time I watched the next episode, you know, a lot of has happened. It, it felt more like a traditional soap opera with a gothic feel to it, a gothic touch to it. Um, you got the hint that it was going to be more mysterious you didn't get the hint that there was going to be vampires and werewolves running around. And the first episode, it was what it was in the short amount of time. It intrigued me enough. I mean, it was it was the start introduction of the character of Victoria coming in, being the, they didn't call her a nanny. What did they call it? Governess. Governess. Um, and you, you get a feel that there's some mysterious things going on, maybe, but not 
horror related, but again, you get that gothic feel to it. And I, you know, the first episode, honestly, it hooked me enough that I would have watched a few more to see what was going on after that. Yeah, it's intriguing, and the, the intrigue was who is Victoria. There's a mystery of who her parents are and why. Even I'll back up a sec. So. The first episode does set up some of the characters that will be there from the start to the finish. And basically, you know, the matriarch of the Collins family in Collinsport, Maine is Elizabeth. Her brother, Roger, those are the two characters. Elizabeth summons, well, she doesn't summon. She sends for Victoria Winters to come be a governess. And Victoria doesn't really know why she was chosen. There's a mystery. Perhaps Elizabeth is her mother. That's the type of intrigue. Um, she meets a mysterious stranger at the train station. He has some ties to the Colin family. He may be there to ruin them because they're big business tycoons. Uh, so that's the kind of intrigue that was there. In the next nine months before Barnabas arrives, they did have a ghost here and there. Um, they did have, and to me, this is a bizarre storyline to have before you've even dipped your toe in the water with vampires. They had a phoenix. So Elizabeth's nephew, yes, Elizabeth's nephew, Roger's son, David, who is the, the young boy in the show, his mother disappeared, had disappeared. She comes back and she's a phoenix. She wants to take her son and disappear into the flames and be reborn. That's kind of a bizarre that is a bizarre storyline. I mean, that's that makes vampires look like commonplace. So there were some dabbling, but still uh, nothing to grab the viewers and, and to be, you know, good in the ratings. I wondered if you noticed a difference in quality between that first episode and really anything you saw after that. As far as like quality of the writing, production. Or? I mean, they used a lot of location think, shots that yeah. they would rarely use in the future. It didn't look at me. Certainly, um, the rest of the series had, did have much more of a of a staged appearance to it. And I think that I also think watching things in black and white tend to to hide some of the the imperfections that you see on a on a videotaped color presentation because black and white watching and I find the same thing with with Doctor Who watching the older Doctor Who episodes in the first six seasons. Yeah, they're they're just as cheap, but I don't know. They they have a almost a better look than if you watch some of the stuff from the seventies, which was color. Tends to feel I always when I I love Doctor Who, folks, but when I watch this, especially the shows from the seventies, sometimes I feel like I'm watching a Saturday morning show. The way it looks, kind of like Land of the Lost kind of appearance to it. That videotape appearance always comes across looking a little cheaper, and when you watch some of those. Uh, that the early dark shadows. I mean, you get that that black and white feel makes it just look a little glossier, a little bit. Even though production values probably weren't that much better uh, by the time you start getting into months of the, of the show. Yeah, that's a good point. It's like it's sort of like watching a black and white movie. I mean, it just seems crisper, uh, and you get into color. It's sort of, especially videotaped. It does sort of look washed out a little bit. It does. Wa- it, it, you know. Um, the flames, for example, on the, on the candles, but there's always candles going on in this. You know, you're not going to see the uh, the blurriness as much as you do on the color ones because, again, you're looking at a videotape, low quality presentation that we're lucky to have. After after all, everything appeared blue in some of those episodes, the blue candles, and I don't know if that was just something they did in production or if that's just something the way that that the episodes look now. 
because they were they were made cheaper. But I, I kept asking, "Is like why are the candles blue?" You don't get it in later episodes, but for a while there, it just seemed like they they had that appearance. The and I think it was just because some of the colors were maybe a little off. Isn't there something about being able to record fire on either video or something? It doesn't always appear natural. I, I, I think I think you may be right on that. I mean, I think that's why, like I said, you know, when you're dealing with a with a videotape that quality, that 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 era, things look cheaper. There, there's a cheaper appearance to it. So obviously, you all are figuring this out. It, Dark Shadows did start as a black and white series um it first it did transition to color during its run and that was in episode 295 which was oh a year just over a year i guess from when it aired originally aired so it it did transition to that this is your first section of dark shadows i don't really know anything else to say about this. It's I. This is actually a section I had never seen because Steve's right. If you're going to start out, you start with Barnabas. That's what you want to see. But I did begin revisiting, and it is compelling. It is something I want to finish different than what will come later. But but they're good. It's it's not worth writing off. You know, watching them ever. So the next section of storyline is the arrival of Barnabas Collins. His first episode was 221, which aired in May of 67. And this is uh, the first set of episodes that uh, that we watched. Uh, some of the, the things that happen in these episodes is, is Barnabas arrives. Uh, Willie Loomis, who is sort of a shady character that only appeared on Dark Shadows a few episodes before Barnabas did, he catches a glimpse of the portrait of, of Barnabas. And I always think this is funny because in earlier episodes, I'm certain that portrait was never there, but obviously they knew the character was coming and suddenly the portrait appears in the hallway, you know, and Willie sees it and he sees Barnabas's ring and he thinks this gives him the idea that there's jewelry and riches that might be buried in the family mausoleum with um, not just Barnabas probably, but anyone that's that's been buried there. So Willie's going to uh, go and, and break into the mausoleum and look around in some coffins and see if he can find his riches. So finds a coffin that's got chains wrapped around it. That should kind of have been a clue that... You should just leave. Yes. You should just leave. Yeah. I mean, nobody ever watches movies in these movies, you know, or sort of, I just don't get it. Yeah. But so he undoes the chains, he lifts the coffin, and you see an arm reach up and grab him around the neck. And that's an interesting shot that will be repeated later through Barnabas's ventures as he ends up back in a coffin and various people will release him. It, it's always sort of a play on that original scene with shot from the lid of the coffin being up and the hand coming up and grabbing. So that actually happened a couple episodes uh, before Barnabas actually appeared. And, you know, we're building the, the mystery here. Uh, so anyway, he, he rings the door at Collinwood, uh, the mansion where Roger and Elizabeth live, and he introduces himself as a lost cousin. Not lost, but he's been in England and... Boy, it's funny he has a resemblance to his ancestor, Barnabas Collins, that's hanging in the hall. So we saw some episodes with Barnabas's early arrival. What Any thoughts or comments about that? Any 
questions of what you didn't understand. I, I, I want to say that I love Jonathan Fred's performance as Barnabas. It's one of the standout aspects of Dark Shadows. In some ways, he, he plays a traditional vampire, but in other ways, because you're dealing with a, a serialized soap opera, he's different than, than a normal vampire. There's a, a human aspect to him that, that tends to, uh, again, because in most times you're seeing a vampire for maybe an hour and a half, right? I mean, this time you're, you're getting to learn more about Barnabas over the course of days and weeks and months and years. So I loved his performance. He immediately drew me in and I could see how, how he, his arrival overshadowed all the episodes that came before that because the show changed drastically with, with the, with the arrival of Barnabas Collins. And, uh, I mean, at this point, I, you know, I didn't have any questions up to this point. I, I liked what I saw, you know, I think as, as we start getting into his backstory mm-hmm. and, and get into, as I'm sure we're going to segue to here shortly, the, the time travel aspect of dark shadows, that's where it, it, it can get confusing if you don't, follow along closely because you're going to start to see familiar faces playing multiple characters and a casual person coming in watching a random episode a couple times a week with a soap opera there's five episodes a week and you can usually watch two episodes and it's the same day and you get all the same you know what's going on this can be pretty big because wait a minute this person played this character last week and now they're playing somebody different. And so I think that's where it can be a little bit confusing. It was for me as we would start diving into the vampire curse storyline and start seeing faces that we'd already seen. And now they're playing ancestors of, of their, their character. You almost have to keep a notebook of, of, okay, what's going on? Where are we at? What time are we in? I loved it. I love the period, uh, the period aspects when you go back. And I think that's, in my opinion, from what I'd seen, almost one of the better parts of Dark Shadows is, is the the period aspect of it going into the past, which you're not going to get on a contemporary soap opera of the day. It was something different and unique, and I think still holds up very well. Steve said in his voicemail that Dark Shadows holds up. I think that it does hold up. You're not, because it's a, more of a stage performance, you're really going more on the storyline and the, the actors and the actresses you're not being pulled out of the moment per se by watching a, an older style car, you know, or you're not being pulled out of the moment by a lot of then contemporary devices like, you know, televisions or phones. I mean, you see that somewhat, but really it's more character driven and storyline driven. And I think that's what helps the show still hold up today because it doesn't pull you out of the moment as much. Yeah, a couple comments on what you said. So first of all, uh, as far as Barnabas kind of appearing as a different type of vampire, he wasn't intended uh, to last. He was on as a gimmick for ratings to try to boost the ratings. I can't remember how long he was intended. It could have been as little as six weeks, but the reaction was so immediate that obviously we know what happened. He was there to, to its last day. So he was, at the beginning, more of a villain. And one of the clips I have on the YouTube channel, I call it the brutality of Barnabas Collins. He'll beat Willie with his cane. Uh, he gets very angry. He 
it manipulates. He's he's a villain, but eventually, and what I think made him so endearing was that, and this is probably what you hear about the character, that he's the reluctant vampire. You know, they turn him into where he doesn't like what he is, and storylines focus on him being cured because he no longer wants to hurt people and be a vampire. So he became a sympathetic character, although he was intended originally to be uh, be the villain. Uh, the characters or cast playing different characters, that's one thing I love about Dark Shadows. I mean, it is like a repertory theater where the same people play. Uh, and I can't imagine what that might have been like. I mean, you probably had a contract as an actor on Dark Shadows where you were hired for a time period and probably weren't hired for a particular role. Uh, you probably never really knew uh, who you might play. And I think that would be incredibly fun. I, I think they must have enjoyed that. I think with, with you know, as with, with any actor or actress, if they're playing the same character over the course of like, you know, standard six, seven, eight seasons of a TV show, a lot of times they're ready to move on after that because they've done that character. They've looked at all aspects of that character. You know, the actors who play Doctor Who typically play, or the Doctor typically lasts three years and they move on. They're ready to experiencing something different. Soap operas, you will have actors and actresses who will play the same character sometimes for long stretches of time, decades in some cases. And I can't, I can't imagine that it would get old playing the same, you know, I look at actor Eric Braden who plays in Young and the Restless and he's been playing that character for what, 30, 40 years now at least. I mean, how many times can you get married and how many times can you get killed and come back from the dead? It's when you get a chance to play maybe a different aspect of the character. And, and at the most, what they can do is they can, maybe the character is a drunk. Maybe the character has amnesia here. They're getting to play basically a whole different character. And although again, it was confusing watching it from random episodes here and there, because you're like, well, wait a minute, this, this person was somebody in the last episode I just watched. Now all of a sudden they're a gypsy. And I'm like, it's confusing when you watch these random episodes. But when you watch them collectively, I'm sure that it does make sense because you're getting a chance to get reacquainted with this new character, even though the face may be familiar. Well, it, it does, but even towards the end, I think the most diehard fan gets a little bit confused. And I think that's ultimately what contributed to its demise. Uh, so in this chunk of, of time, 1967-68, uh, was roughly eight months of episodes so it was Barnabas. There were a couple subplots. Um, Barnabas's, when he originally lived in 1795, the love of his life was Josette Dupre. And in the modern time, there's a lot of reference to Josette. And when he meets Maggie Evans, the local waitress at the diner, it's uh, the resemblance of Josette. And uh, he wants to control her and bring Josette back to him through her. So that's a big plot, and there's a lot of soap opera stuff that goes along, kidnappings and disappearances and, uh, and things like that with that. And really, the other major storyline through this time, although there are others, is, again, Barnabas wanting to be cured. And there's a wonderful storyline. It's repeated in the movie House of Dark Shadows, where Julia Hoffman believes that she can cure Barnabas by replacing his blood cells, whole blood, something crazy. Barnabas gets impatient and he wants to increase the frequency of these treatments. So she gives in 
and he turns into an old man. So this, this experiment has failed, the cure has failed. The only way he can restore himself to being his regular age, or at least appearance, is uh, by drinking blood. And at that point, he bites Carolyn, who is Elizabeth's daughter, and that restores him, and she sort of becomes his vampire slave. So that's roughly what happens in that period of time. Anything there, Spark? Anything you want to say? Don't think we saw all of that in the episodes that we watched. Um, no, there's references to it. Um, I think, you know, as we're working through this, this the one thing, I got to say this, when he becomes a vampire, they the first time <laughs> out... They use a. Whoa, 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 are you talking about in the flashback when he becomes the vampire? When he becomes when? Let's, yeah, let's not talk about that. Yet. Okay, okay. Because I want to. I want to talk yeah. about the, the the effects because they they did change the first time. There's a a, a a bat, and then the second time I saw the bat, there's a big change in special effects. I want to talk about the, the what they did for the... Okay, well, well, we'll get there quick. So the next phase, then, is basically the origin of Barnabas Collins. It's a flashback to the year 1795 and 96, when Barnabas first lived and had his romance with Josette and meets his arch enemy for the rest of the series, Angelique. So the tool they use to get him back is a seance. Modern times, Barnabas's little sister, Sarah Collins, who died back in 1795, is haunting the house. And people are seeing her, and they think the only way to find out what is going on is to have a seance. So they gather around the table, have the seance. At the end of this seance, Victoria Winters, the governess, has disappeared from the room, and in her place is this other woman named Phyllis Wick. Phyllis Wick was the governess on her way in 1795 to be governess for the children, and she has traded places in time. This allows the story then to go back to 1795 and to see everything that happened and made Barnabas a vampire. Barnabas actually never married Josette. He was engaged, but Angelique, Josette's handmaiden, mistress, servant, was in love with Barnabas, and they had had a fling in Martinique. And it was just a one-time thing for Barnabas. He really loved Josette, but Angelique never let go of that and and loved Barnabas for the rest of her life. And she was a witch, so she would do horrible things to make Barnabas be hers. One of the things she did was make Barnabas's brother, Jeremiah, fall in love with Josette. Those two were the ones that were married so that Angelique could have Barnabas. Barnabas didn't like that, obviously. He killed Angelique. Killed is a relative term in Dark Shadows, but for the moment, killed her. And in her dying breath, she cursed him that anyone he loved would die. Now, Richard, talk about your bats. (laughs) I will go back one step and and say that that storyline, the love triangle, if you will... That is classic soap opera storytelling. You you take the 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 time travel element out of it, and that is something you would have seen on and have seen on virtually every other soap opera. And so that is that is probably one of those elements that I think you know could have potentially appealed to the more casual viewer. 
because that's something that was just very, very common. I think, so the sequence where Barnabas becomes uh, a vampire, you know, the acting in this is melodramatic because it's a soap opera. And uh, again, I love it for that. Um, some people may find it cheesy. I find it charming. I love it. When I saw the bat initially, I thought, well, okay, we're working with a shoestring budget here. <laughs> and, you know, it, it is, it's, it's something where I didn't catch the first time because that particular episode, I think, was part of the individual episodes. It was when we watched the omnibus edition uh, that my girlfriend pointed out. I was like, you can see the guy with a bowl. I was like, no, you can't. I rewound it. I was like, sure enough. Yes, there he is right in the frame. I, you know, it, it, it for 19, what, what year was 67. this? 67. Television. Uh, I got to say, that was pretty pretty low budget. However... I thought it looked much more realistic than what we would get when he would become a vampire again in a later storyline. And they did the same thing with a sequence with the, the hand, where there's a hand that's, that's I can't remember, the, the character is getting, is getting choked out or getting killed with the hand. It just kind of, it grows and... and oh, because uh, can't. Count Patofi. That is that is that's chroma key is what that special effect is chroma key. It is it is cheap. It, it, it's a cheap special effect. It is what you saw on Land of the Lost, for example, and a lot of Saturday morning live action TV shows would use that chroma key effect, which essentially, you know, nowadays that's CGI, right? But essentially, it's taking a uh, a live actor or an image and superimposing it. Uh, against a green screen and, and then filling in the green screen with the other elements. So they would use this on, on Doctor Who as well, and a lot of times with varying degrees of success because more times than not, the chroma key vision or image oftentimes kind of disappears a little bit as it's being transposed onto the film. And, and it's so transparent. It's transparent, and so I think that when they did that again, and when all, every other sequence after that, I think that they had a bat, it was chroma key, and it l did not look anywhere near as good. It made you miss the the strings and, and the, the rubber bat on the and screen. the rubber bat because it was that was to me was much more realistic than the chroma key version, which you could tell it, it would have been better if they would have animated it, but clearly you didn't have time. Chroma key is not the best way to do special effects, and that makes it appear very very dated. The bat on a string did not, and I actually liked that sequence for what it was. A little comical, a little cheesy, but a lot of times you don't see how a vampire becomes a vampire. So uh, I thought that was that was a nice touch, and uh, I, I I liked the vampires' curse storyline a lot, despite the fact there was some gaps and stuff. I was able to follow the storyline for the most part, and the and the again the love triangle. Uh, so to speak, I, I, the Josette storyline, the Angelique. Angelique was the stereotypical villain on soap operas. I mean, she's always scheming and and in love with a character and will do whatever they can to get that character and sometimes go over the edge and then kind of feel bad about it and then something will tick them off and they just say, oh, well, I'm just <laughs> going to do this to you. And that's where you get the soap opera elements to Dark Shadows that that work with the, the gothic trappings that go around it. So this is 
what I would call the common part of Dark Shadows. I am guessing anyone that doesn't even really know much about Dark Shadows has an idea of this story. It's the one that they focused in the 90s when they remade uh, Dark Shadows as a big-budget TV series. It, even to a certain extent in Tim Burton's Dark Shadows movie, this is the story. I have a feeling people are pretty familiar, and when they think of Dark Shadows, they think of this. It is such a drop in the bucket, though. So this whole storyline of his origin, origin was only about five months. So that was even less time spent on that than uh, the, the period before that when Barnabas arrived to me, because of this, and these are the episodes I've seen a million times, from here is when it starts getting more interesting to me. These are the episodes I'm not as familiar with. I've never seen the whole series. I've seen big chunks, but as we go further in, these are the ones I actually enjoyed more. One reason is it really gets better, maybe not the special effects, but the acting. I mean, some of your your biggest line flubs and awkward moments are in these earlier episodes by the end and granted this is when it was becoming less popular to me those are better episodes because they're really clicking they're firing on all cylinders they've worked with each other for four years they're really comfortable they got better with their lines although they were harder to understand i think they were really better episodes later on i would agree with that i mean what i watched before i finally raised the the white flag i was like okay I'm confused. Yeah, you're right. Exactly right. The, there was a much more polished appearance to the episodes, uh, even though they were dealing with some even more convoluted storylines. It was definitely uh, a much more professional look to the episodes. Yeah. So we got to get back to modern times after this five five month flashback. Victoria Winters, who remember, she's the only one that traveled back. The Barnabas that was there is the Barnabas of that time. The Barnabas Prime, if you want to call him, is still sitting at a table in uh, at the seance. And time has frozen there. So to them, everything that happens is like in an instant, although we've seen five months of story in, in the past. So Victoria is there. It had to be hard for the viewer, if you think about it, because you yeah. start with the seance, and then five months later, you're going back to the seance I well, mean, you're immersed in this, in this, oh, yeah, or if you started watching this show, say, you know, two episodes post-Sans, now sometimes they would start an episode and say, time is frozen still. They always they would, start an episode with a narration. Uh, I don't know that it always said that time was frozen, but I, that's one thing that I think helped viewers was the, the beginning narration of every episode. It, it would kind of catch up to what's going on, but I would think that, if you had gotten into the series during that time, and then all of a sudden it's like, Ooh, wait a minute, we're we're in 1969 or whatever, that was a, that would have been a huge leap for for someone that had you not known that's what you're getting into, would have would have thrown off the casual viewer a lot. You know, and you think about the kids running home from school, and even Steve said it was in the morning, and he could only see it on days he was sick or something. I, I don't think then you really watched it for the story. I mean, you watched for some vampire action. You watched for some werewolf, and that was probably enough. I don't know. I mean, I am so anal now. I love I love to skip that flashback and go from the episode 
where they had the seance and then five months later to where it picks up and I like to see what's different while they're sitting differently and I like to pretend that didn't happen and, and say, well, could I continue in modern time and only watch those episodes and would it make sense or would it not because they interjected a flashback in there for five or six months. That's me now being the anal obsessive compulsive person I am. That's, I love that part of it. But back then, I don't really know that anyone cared. I mean, if, yeah, if you were the housewife at home watching every day uh, or joining it late, but then watching every day, I think it would be, it could be confusing. Uh, so Victoria Winters is accused of being a witch because she knows things about the future and she just can't seem to keep her mouth shut. And strange things that are happening that Angelique's doing, people kind of blame Vicky, Victoria Winters. She's accused, goes through a big witch trial, and she's going to be hung. And the moment that she is hung, and to be honest, I don't remember if it is actually her that's hung or if they switch bodies, but at, at the moment of the hanging, Vicky's suddenly back in the present, and our story continues. that is interesting is that Barnabas knows where Vicky has been and he is afraid that she will reveal that he's a vampire because she may have learned that in the past, uh, even though I don't believe that she did. So Barnabas kind of shifts his focus from Maggie and actually it was then Carolyn. So here's a time travel question though, okay. before we go one step further. With Victoria going into the past... Effectively, did she change time then? Well, that is an interesting thing. I don't believe she really changed time this time. There would be cases in the future with time travel where they definitely would change time. Now, this wasn't the only time that we saw 1795 or 96. There were shorter flashbacks when Barnabas went back with the express purpose of changing time to try to save Josette where she didn't die by throwing herself off Widow's Hill. And there would be ramifications of that. That's where it gets fuzzy because they didn't do a real good job of continuity and and they just didn't, you know, plot that all out in advance. But this time, no, she did not really change history by being there. And the continuity issues is probably one of the biggest fallbacks to any soap operas because when you've got, especially over a long period of time, you can fudge storylines a little bit and better than average chance that, you know, most of the viewers are probably going to forget that this specifically happened. You'll have those diehard viewers that'll say, nope, 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 in episode 671. But those will be outnumbered by the casual viewer who may not watch every single episode, you know, four weeks out of the month. Still, it, it's interesting because I was always, I wondered what happened to the original governess when she went back in time, you would assume, her storyline originally she would have been the one to go to to take care right so what had, did she did she go in the place did she get hung as a witch but. wouldn't that be fun you're sitting at a seance <laughs> table and all of a sudden bam you're back oh by the way you're guilty <laughs> off with your head and welcome yeah that would i just i wondered about that it's like clearly there was a a, a transposition of, of characters and so when they went back you know, how did they deal with that and going in the past? And I would think that, again, that that should have changed time. I mean, and that's me being a 
time travel is is convoluted at yes. best with any storyline. And but. by the way, I think they did a fantastic job. I mean, remember, they never thought anyone would see these more than once. So you're absolutely right. They could do whatever they want because who's going to remember what happened, you know, six months ago. But it holds up incredibly well. They did, even with its contradictions and paradoxes, It, I think it's a. they did a fantastic job with it. So Barnes is back in, in present time, 1968 now. A, a year has passed in uh, viewing time. And well, that's when they left. Also, sixty-eight. Worried that Vicky knows he's a vampire, so he turns his attention to her. About this time, Julia Hoffman is earlier. She had expressed she was romantically interested in Barnabas and was very jealous of Vicky and all sorts of intrigue with that. Again, standard soap opera stuff. So here we're going into this section is going to be about a year of episodes. There's a lot of episodes here, and this is actually. To me, stretching the period out, well, it may make it easier to understand, but it also drags the storylines out. And there's two particular storylines that take quite a bit of time here, and it's hard for me to rewatch because I actually get kind of bored with them. One of them is the Adam and Eve storyline. This was their attempt to bring the Frankenstein story into the story. So instead of Frankenstein, we have Dr. Lang, and uh, he creates Adam, and then eventually he wants a mate, and they create Eve. That stretches out quite a bit, and it has interesting ties into the story because this is a period that Barnabas is cured and is not a vampire. Dr. Lang cures him. It's funny, he's not sure how. Some combination of chemicals has cured Barnabas. That was a question I had. So that's the Adam and Eve story that's not covered in this set at all. No, there is one of the episodes where they go to the house and they say where they're keeping Adam. Uh, but we know you don't see him or really get. But there is that question that he was cured. And that was a question. I was like, well, how, how did he get cured? And then, of course, then he becomes a vampire again, eventually, which is where you see this, the bad and the chroma key special effects. But that was the thing. I was like, we were sitting there. I was like, how did he get cured? That was it. Was a big leap, and I I think that they they chose to totally excise that storyline at all because again, you got limited space on the disc. They opted to go for the vampires, curse, and the haunting of Collinwood storylines. Yeah, and the Adam and Eve could very easily be a compilation uh, DVD that they they make because that's a, a big, long, contained story. And then Adam has ties to Barnabas. Something about a life force that Barnabas's life force brings Adam to life, and that cures Barnabas. That's part of how he's cured during this time period. That's a big storyline. Another big storyline is the dream curse. And you, we saw several episodes of that. Yeah. This storyline drives me crazy. And it's got a good idea. Angelique is going to turn Barnabas back into a vampire. And the way it's going to happen is a dream that one person's going to have. And they're going to tell another. And they're going to tell another and another, and eventually it's going to get to Barnabas, and at the end of the dream, he's going to become a vampire again. And by the way, we didn't say, why is Angelique here? She died, remember Barnabas killed her. She comes back several times as a different character who always is either the twin sister of somebody or looks like somebody but it's always Angelique underneath that's masquerading, and she has come back to wreak havoc. And Which was confusing. Barnabas. It was yes. like, how did she come back? Another one of these aspects of jumping around, you don't, they don't do that filler in, in which I think, you know, in retrospect, I think they could have made this set better because they had introductions for all the episodes, which I thought was fun. 
but they don't really give a filler as to how did Barnabas get cured or how they they kind of give you a this is the episode this is what's going on but not what's happened since the previous now granted these are broken up over a series of sets so watching it chronologically is better on one hand but these introductions to episodes don't give you a lot of meat as to okay here's what you need to know and here's right. what's happened I think they should have done that. I think it would have been a better introduction to the series had they filled in some of these gaps because otherwise it is confusing when you're watching these because you, you're left with questions. of like, how did Angelique come back? I thought she died. Right. So she comes back as Cassandra Collins and this is Roger, if you remember, comes home with his new wife, Cassandra, and of course Barnabas recognizes her as Angelique. So she comes with this dream curse. And the problem with the dream curse is we have to see this freaking dream as many times as people have the dream and then tell it. And it, to me, this storyline drags out, you know, way too long. I don't think they showed the dream in these episodes. We saw episodes. a couple episodes of the dream curse. We saw the one, it was episode uh, 477, it's on Best of Angelique, where she tells him about the dream curse. Yeah. And then we also it has the conclusion of the dream curse. So here, 60 episodes later, the dream curse concludes. But see, they don't show the dream, though. In the, either oh, episodes. you're right. They don't that's show the was, actual dream. That's right. what I was saying. That Because it took a huge leap, and I'm like, okay, great, but what's this dream? I yeah. wanted to see the dream, and, then and I didn't get a chance to see it. And it's really cool one time. I just see it too many times, and if you're... That's, to me, a time that you could kind of skip through episodes. Just my personal opinion. But it, no, it's really cool. There's like three doors, and the characters go in there, and one of the doors they open is the next person that they're going to tell the dream to, and then another door has like a, a hovering skull. and It's very creepy and atmospheric, and that's another thing about Dark Shadows, and I think that it gets better later, is the atmosphere. I mean, on a shoestring, like you said, they do some pretty creepy stuff with webs and being out in the woods and basements and mausoleums. And one of the best is in a, a later episode, just a, a hallway in the, the future when Collinwood has been destroyed. It's, I don't know. I think it's really quite impressive. I mean, I think they did good with what the budget they had again, considering this is, they were doing episodes every single day, five days a week, you know, week after week after week. You don't have time to polish things up necessarily. You got to go on the fly and make these things look good. I think the sets were great. You know, again, stagey to a certain degree, but that's like any soap opera uh, and a lot of television shows of the day too. You didn't necessarily get a full three dimensional view of everything. I think they did fantastic with it. Very atmospheric. And the music is just that. I, the music makes it today. I think it's. Just I would agree. I would stingers agree. Stingers and it's. Oh. Josette's music box. Did you have that in any of the episodes? There was a, a briefly seen in one, I think, and I didn't quite. Under, I mean, it was a reference to it, but it didn't really dive too much. Yeah, he that. he had originally given that to her, and then in the present day with Maggie Evans, he gave her the music box and just that music. And Quentin had a theme, and that was a hit. Any of them are terribly long. I mean, they're just 
and they do repeat. It's like the same ones, but really, really effective in the show. Quentin's ghost. This is when we first see Quentin in modern times yes. begins haunting. And that's the whole other compilation. So this is at the end of this period, this 12-month period. So what it's ultimately building to is we're going to have a flashback like we did with Barnabas to go back and get Quentin's origin story. And that takes place in 1897, which is about a 10-month period. So yes, there you saw a lot of these episodes. And I will say that David Selby, again, does an amazing job. New David, I mean, he's one of those character actors on TV. He was on Falcon Crest for many, many years as one of the main characters. The He was one of the villains on there, if I recall correctly. Not a J.R. Ewing-type villain, but he was borderline bad guy. It's clear he has an affection for this series quite a bit because he, because he does some of the introductions on these episodes, and there was an interview or segment with him on this disc. And so it's clear that he, uh, and I don't know, is David Selby still with us? Yes. Okay. He was in um, an FX show, the X-Men spinoff, with the guy from Downton Abbey. Yes, yes, Um, yes, Legion. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so I mean, he he has a a strong affection for this series. And uh, no, he's not one, there's some books that have been written. That's written by, I think, one of the other actresses, right. yeah. Angelique. But he has participated in the audio productions. So uh, he clearly has, has a love for this character and a love for the series. And, and I dare say, besides Jonathan Frid, I mean, he's probably, of what I saw, was the, the second best aspect as far as the cast goes. Uh, clearly a leading man. From what I understand, his character was introduced as a way to get Jonathan Frid a little less screen time. Uh, because he was being so used as Barnabas, Jonathan Frid. I, if I'm correct, did did he not rec- request a little less screen time, and so they they brought in the character? I, that sounds right. I do know there were long periods of time where Barnabas was locked in his coffin, and we never saw him. So he did have time off, and that may have coincided at some point with Quentin coming in. So we're going to go back and see Quentin's origin. And there's two reasons that Barnabas goes back. One is to find out why is his ghost haunting in the present. And the other one is, at that time, this is where the werewolf storyline came in. And Chris Jennings was the werewolf. Turns out he's a great-grandson of Quentin, but at that time they didn't know. So he he goes back for twofold reason, which turns out really they're related, because Quentin did have the vampire curse put on him back in 1897. And with Chris Jennings being his great-grandson, that explains... That gave us clues to the way of ending the werewolf problem in the present time. And he was haunting the house. That that becomes, that's very convoluted because Beth was his chambermaid and he was having an affair with her, uh, but was married to someone else. And she was jealous and she killed him, but Angelique brought him back to life, but he was a zombie. And lots of things made him not a happy person, so... In essence, he was haunting then because David, in the present, was the equivalent of the boy at the time back then, and he wanted to claim his, uh, so he was haunting in the future to do that. This is maybe one of the most confusing parts for me. Did What questions did you have about the haunting of Collinwood or... Um, the werewolf or anything from what you saw. I think this this was the part where I really started to get confused with the different characters. Uh, but this 
you've got, you know, we're getting introduced to, you're seeing familiar faces, but yet, you know, I, I, again, I can't remember the actress's name, but she had played a doctor, and now all of a sudden she's playing a gypsy. Magda the Gypsy. That was Grayson Hall. Great actress. You're sitting there, and you're starting to say, I don't know, for me, I'm like, well, okay, um, wasn't she the doctor, you know, and now she's a gypsy. I didn't see how they introduced her. Again, the problem with skipping episodes around. I loved David Selby, uh, and so he helped through some of my struggles during this time period where I'm like, there's just too much skipping around and I'm not, I'm just getting a flavor of storylines, but then it's like that flavor is snatched away and we're going to skip 30 episodes and here's something else for you. Cause as you start looking at this list of episodes that are included as we're going around, I mean, there's some pretty big gaps. Like we go from episode what, 10, 24 to 10, 65, you're skipping 40 episodes. Uh, and then, you know, you're, then you're skipping ahead you know, another 40 episodes. So that's where I started to struggle with some of these big leaps. When you're skipping 10 episodes, it's a lot easier, but all of a sudden you get these random characters that are being introduced and they might look familiar to you, but they're not the same person you were. You saw them maybe just three episodes back. At the time, I think it was probably confusing to a degree but at least maybe a little time had lapsed between and so you you had gotten used to this is what dark shadows did watching it piecemeal like this made it hard it really did this flashback to quentin this was actually the peak of the popularity which strikes me as odd because that was a period part of the series and i wouldn't think to the general viewer that would be uh popular but it did have barnabas it had quentin it had werewolf zombies i mean that there was a lot going on and and that was the peak of the show's popularity another interesting thing with the time travel so this time barnabas travels back through use of the i ching which is some mystical device it sort of looks like nunchucks i think but this is only sending his astral body to the past not physical so he has to go inside his body that existed in that time period well in that time period he was locked in a coffin so he wakes up in uh, 1897 and he's trapped in this coffin which i think is kind of cool that's that's where you know they could have just easily send him back, you know, and not even address the fact that there's another Barnabas there. So I I think there was some effort taken to... that. This just a very interesting concept to me, and that's, you know, one of the concepts that, that I like. I, they did pay attention to continuity to a certain degree. I mean, and again, you can get a little lax with it because you're dealing with, with a long period of time. Uh, and you're dealing with a daytime soap opera, so they, you know, they're kind of winging a lot of this stuff. But I, I you know, hearing that, yeah, there's clearly that's evidence of, okay, let's let's put a little thought into this. You know, maybe that wasn't the case as the show wore on. They they were getting more convoluted storylines, and it was beginning. Okay, but by the t- this time, you're seeing the fifth or sixth character, you know, being played by the same actor or actress, and that's where this is the the time period where I was starting to get a little confused. There was big gaps 
and it was starting to get frustrated. And this is, I can see that because think of this, in when Barnabas sent his astral body back, he was cured. He had been cured, but if he goes into his old body, well, he was a vampire at that time. So that's an example of how, you know, one day he's a vampire, one day he's not, and if you don't have that whole context, yeah, you don't know what the heck's going on. So, you know, a lot of storylines here. This was a long period of time. This, the hand you mentioned, that was the hand of Count Potofi. He was a, a warlock, and this hand was a gypsy relic that could possibly be used to cure Clinton. That storyline was going on. The paint, there was a painting of Quentin that, as long as it was intact, it cured him of being a vampire. It was a little bit of a Dorian Gray type thing. So lots of interesting storylines in this time. <laughs> so people didn't always come back to the present to go back in time. So from 1897, that's when Barnabas went back to 1796 to try to save Josette from dying. There was a character in 1897 named Kitty Soames, who was the same actress, Catherine Lee Scott. She disappeared into the portrait of Josette. He was able to follow her actually did prevent her from dying, and this is where we're talking about changing time, she still died, but which is a way to say, you know, fate is fate. What's going to happen is going to happen. Even if you change the way it happens, she still died. So he failed. While he's there, he is actually... Kid, you know, kidnapped, I guess, is the right word, and brought back to the present by the Leviathans. The Leviathans are sort of a Lovecraftian species that has always existed, and they want to use Barnabas in the present to get their way and rule the world or whatever. So that involves children being born that grow up very quickly, sort of a little bit of reference to Village of the Damned with kids that have odd hair and funny eyes. People don't care for this storyline. I think, in general, with fans, it's one of the least favorite. I, I kind of like that storyline. I mean, it's one of the most crazy ones, uh, but it's not as familiar, so I kind of like that storyline, but it's not a favorite among fans. And I think there were a couple episodes in the set uh, because there was a antique shop. This is actually how Quentin was introduced into the story because um, a man, strange man, comes into... Uh, the shop, and I believe Carolyn goes to meet him, and Barnabas, who never drives a car, is driving a car and hits him, and this is Quentin. So you really haven't watched past this. This is where I, this is where, yeah. Okay. I, 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 and I don't, I don't, again, I don't think they really covered the Leviathans, I don't think, very much in this set. Yeah, it just vaguely, in, in reference, I know that antique shop, because there was the episode where Barnabas hits Quentin, and this is the first time he appeared in, he had been a ghost in modern times, but now uh, he was a real life person for the first time in modern times. Didn't have any memory. He thought he was somebody else, but again, Barnes recognizes him and is afraid that his secret will be uncovered. Relatively short time here. Uh, we move into 1970. Here's where they introduce parallel time. So this is basically the same time period, but different things are happening with the characters. They do about five months of this. 
Barnabas over there never was a vampire. So when Barnabas goes, he now is a vampire. So that's interesting. The whole driving of the storyline in parallel time is that Angelique Collins uh, had died, and that was throwing the family into turmoil. So this was, there wasn't a lot of supernatural stuff going on here in this time. Uh, had you continued watching, there were a couple episodes, there was a woman named Roxanne Drew, who actually was a vampire. Barnabas loved her for a while. Angelique didn't like that. Sort of the same. Here we start to start repeating, and, and some of these love triangle, quadrangle things kind of get maybe a different environment, maybe different, same actors, but maybe a different character, but it's always the same uh, story. So we go through that for about five months. The, and also I want to mention that the way they travel in time is always interesting. There was a stairway in time at one time. Uh, they got into parallel time by, there was a room in the East Wing that you could see what was happening in parallel time. And if you stepped through, you were in parallel time and then you couldn't get back. So always really clever devices they used for their time travel. From 1970 parallel time, Julia joined Barnabas. They tried to get back to 1970. Instead, they stepped out of the room. They were in 1995. So we're going to the future now. Colin was destroyed. A little bit of retread of the Quentin haunting storyline. This time we have a character named Gerard Stiles that is haunting Collinwood. He got further than Quentin did. He drove everyone out of Collinwood and it's deserted. And Barnabas and Julia want to go back to figure out if they can prevent this from happening. So they go back to 1970 and we have the whole story for only a couple months about Gerard Stiles and why he's haunting. This is when Kate Jackson joins the cast uh, as Daphne Harridge, a new governess. Um, there's lots of intrigue with that and multiple people that love her and have betrayed her and, and, and all of that standard soap opera stuff. The last big storyline uh, of Dark Shadows for the last four of its six remaining months was took place in 1840. Just a new family, new set of things. I always thought this was kind of silly. We had the head of Judah Zachary. You would have seen some episodes where there is this, the head of this man that they carry around in a case and then they put him in a cabinet. Judah Zachary was a warlock who actually in the day had laid some of the seeds that caused some of these supernatural things to happen for some of these people to be cursed. But this storyline dealt with trying to reunite the body with the head. And there were some funny lines in these parts where they talk about it. It just sounds silly. They talk about a head and they're looking for the head and the head's doing this and it just got a little silly but it, but it's kind of funny angelique's again masquerading as somebody else more of the same let's say but it, it's interesting to see the the actors again playing a new character because they are ancestors of the characters and you've heard them speak of these characters in modern times and then to see them it's always just a little bell kind of clicks and that's always it's kind of cool if you're able to keep track 1840 and Actually, Dark Shadows never returns to the current time, which is 1970. Having prevented Gerard Stiles from 
destroying Collinwood, which we assume that they did. We never see 1995 again, but we assume they were able to save that. From there, they had 1840. From then, 1840 in the past, we go to 1840 parallel time. is where the series concludes and that's a big uh it's only a couple months before the show is over but this really plays up on shirley jackson's the lottery where they cast the lottery and then people have to spend the night in this room and ends with the characters bramwell collins which is jonathan frid and Catherine, and they do they do have a happy ending of course these are characters we've only known for two months not ones we've invested five years in but these characters get a happy ending. We'll play here at the end of the show, the final voiceover, where they say the howling in the woods actually was just wolves or dogs, and they lived happily ever after. So that's the end. Then they they never really resolved. You know, you never any get of the back tradi- no, traditional storylines. Yeah. Did they have much notice? Uh, not that I recall. I and they must. I mean, they. I think if you watch those last few episodes, things kind of speed up. They must not have had a lot of notice because I would think I would hope they would try to return to the original characters and try to wrap that up somehow, but. They certainly didn't have enough time to plan that kind of a conclusion. That's unfortunate. That, but I mean, I think with a lot of soap operas, they you know they did have that at least foreknowledge that okay, this is going to be ending. You can't necessarily wrap up every storyline, but I think uh, it would have been nice if they'd been able maybe to end in modern times, which is of course where the series started, and been able to give some type of closure to these characters. Well, I think we did pretty well. I mean, it's I consider myself a fan, but yet obviously even I still get confused. <laughs> it's it's convoluted, but I just I love it. I think it's fascinating. I I you combine the soap operas with with the continuity and the stories that I like and you know, I I like regular soap operas. And but then you add the horror element and you know, that's just like perfect for me oh i think yeah absolutely i i love the series uh what i saw but even though it was very hard to follow along at times again i liked the characters specifically of, of barnabas and quentin i liked the actors who portrayed them you could see the love and affection that went into this i loved it for its melodramatic cheesiness at times and the bad special effects and the random guy in the background. I loved all of that and it, and it, and it hooked me. And I think that anyone diving into this, like I, I did, I would recommend if you want to see, get a taste for the series and see if you like what you see, get this 50th anniversary set, make the extra effort to, watch the episodes in a chronological order, maybe start off with those omnibus editions, even though there's a lot of skipping around in that, it would be enough to, to give you a pretty good taste of 
this is what you, this is what Dark Shadows is. Do you like it? And if you do, then take the the next step. And I think that I will be taking the next step. And and uh, again, I've got so many things I want to watch, but it's something that that is something I definitely want to do somewhere down the line is buy that set and make the attempt of trying to watch through all of the episodes as best I can because I liked what I saw. It is it's a show that's got a cult following and it's not something that you're going to be able to to see on television with great regularity because it is so big and so daunting and convoluted at times, but it's definitely worth the effort to dive into it and see if you liked it because I certainly did. Oh, that's just music to my ears. I'm so happy to hear that. So we mentioned just briefly, I mean, there were two theatrical movies, House of Dark Shadows, Night of Dark Shadows. In the 90s, there was the, the miniseries right at the time the Gulf War started. They blame that for its, its ratings and the, the fact that it didn't continue Tim Burton's movie. There was a CW series that they shot a pilot for, didn't even finish the pilot. You can find it online. I, did, I want to say I did see the Johnny Depp movie yeah. uh, with very little knowledge of the series and now, of course, knowing and seeing Jonathan Frid's performance as Barnabas, I don't know what the hell they were thinking by casting Johnny Depp as that. I I love Johnny Depp as as certain characters, right? I love Pirates of the Caribbean, and but he has become a parody of himself, I think, in, in so many roles. And I felt that when I watched Dark Shadows. I was like, who am I watching? Am I watching Captain Jack with, with Fangs? And I don't know that they they really came anywhere close to capturing the feel of what I just witnessed here in the original series. Yeah, I I kind of I I sort of like that movie. Before it came out, my fear was Tim Burton. It was going to go off the rails. It was just going to be crazy. After I saw it, I actually think it wasn't crazy enough. I think he could have gone further. I did not like how it ended. Carolyn was never a werewolf in the series. That just felt out of place but other than that and no it doesn't have the same spirit but you know you just think when you're a fan of something like this in any iteration for it to come back i mean whoever thought so many years later there would be a tim burton dark shadows with johnny depp just that fact alone is just amazing and i i appreciate the effort i i did enjoy it but yeah, it's it's not the same, and people will say, well, it's not my Dark Shadows, but I don't mind it. Any last words? I, you probably just concluded there. I think I did. I think, right. uh, again, I liked it. I enjoyed it. Uh, thank you for introducing yeah. me to sure. the incredibly easy-to-understand world yeah. of Dark Shadows. Uh, don't let my comments dissuade you. I, I strongly recommend, if you are a fan of of anything horror or gothic that you give it a try get this 50th anniversary set watch or i think even the the vampire's curse and the haunting of collingwood were released individually at one point yep. on dvds uh, and i think do that watch those it'll give you a taste and if you like that then welcome to dark shadows because again i did and uh, i loved it yeah and i think Real quick, the so the best of Angelique, best of Quentin, best of Barnabas. So those compilations are, I guess if you think of them literally, those episodes were chosen to showcase that character. So if you're taking these episodes and putting them chronologically, maybe that's not the way to go because you are going to have these big gaps. Maybe a different approach would be to stick with the 
each one and sort of just savor the character and the acting and, and not worry so much about putting the, the puzzle together. That's not the way I could approach it because I, I've got to do everything chronologically. There are many ways that you could approach it to get your taste and see if you like it. I want to give credit to a couple of resources um, if you are interested in more about Dark Shadows or, or want to fill in some of the fuzzy gaps that, that we said here. There is a wonderful wiki. There's a Dark Shadows wiki. It's got episode guides, you know, cross links to characters and actors, and it's it's for the original series, the the miniseries, the movies, everything Dark Shadows. I didn't tell you about it because I thought you might cheat and uh, try to fill in some of the gaps, but I, I resource that frequently. It's a wonderful resource. And then there is the Collinsport Historical Society, which is a blog that does a lot of cool things with Dark Shadows. Um, I think they're currently running a series, the Dark Shadows Daybook, which talks about not the show from the perspective of the time of its stories, but like from a week in the actual year, you know, what was going on during that week, what episodes were filming, what episodes aired. That's really interesting. And they have a great Instagram there. He does a lot of, of cool Dark Shadows images and manipulations of, of things to bring dark shadows into it. So both of those are excellent resources. And again, check out the YouTube channel for classic horrors. There's about eight little videos on there. Uh, some members, little clippets of funny things. There's from the pre Barnabas episode, David tries to kill his father by sabotaging his car. And a character named Bill Malloy gives Roger a, I call it Auto Mechanics 101 with Bill Malloy because he shows him a very crude drawing of a spark plug and he tries to explain what a spark plug is and what happens if you remove it. And it's just funny. And to watch the dancing at the Blue Whale, which was the the club where the kids went in Collinsport, it, it's just such a, a relic of that time. And it, it's fascinating to watch them dance and the music that they're playing. <laughs> wrap it up that's dark shadows thank you for participating richard and i'm glad that you got something out of it let's take a quick break and we'll come back and wrap up with our normal stuff look at those trees how lovely they look reflected in the sunlight barnabas i love to be with you you have a way of looking at things as if they were completely new to you you've never seen them before some people live in boxes all their lives. You know, I feel I'm beginning a whole new life. And you're responsible for that life. I can't tell you how exciting it is to be with you. Barnabas Collins, vampire, takes a bride in a bizarre act of unnatural love. <laughs> House of Dark Shadows from MGM. Come see how the vampires do it. Rated GP, all ages parental guidance. We are back. 
let's wrap up this marathon with our usual features, birthdays, anniversaries, etc. Uh, first up, new releases coming out. Um, not such a great month, really, in September. Uh, we have a, a TV movie coming out from Shout Factory called The Spell. It was from 1977. Helen Hunt is in it. She'd been pretty young. Yeah, yeah. so that... That could be interesting, I Does guess. Does not ring a bell. Yeah, Rebecca. Uh, not really horror, but uh, the 1940 is getting a Criterion collection, and it just got a Blu-ray release maybe three years ago, hmm. maybe longer at this point. I'm looking at it right there. I've got the Blu-ray of it. Um, Criterion, of course. I don't know what they could do to improve on the picture, but uh, they've surely probably had a lot of supplements. Right, and that's probably what's there. Our favorite, The Mummy from the Dark Universe, have to mention that, uh, is coming out. I don't know that's particularly, does it seem like it's fast, hitting home video fast, or is it about um, the normal time? Three months. Yeah. So, I mean, that seems to be the average these days for most movies. Keeping in mind, Wonder Woman came out at the same time, made a gazillion dollars at the box office, and it too is coming out in September. So, hmm. uh, I think that, uh, are you going to get it? Are you going to add it to your collection? I am. Yeah. I, I have to. I'm a completist. I mean, yeah, it's universal, right? You got to get it. So, it, I, as a matter of fact, I, there's a spot for it somewhere on the shelf. Yeah. But I'm curious to see if there's going to be maybe any any extras or deleted scenes or. I wonder any, how that'll play on a second viewing, not having maybe quite the expectations. Although I really tried to go into it with low expectations. It's still hard when you go into a theater and, and it's it's the mummy, right? I mean, you're going to go into it with some measure of expectation. Uh, it might play better uh, on second viewing. I don't know. I will probably watch it in October because I know that uh, you know my girlfriend Carla wanted to see it and didn't because we didn't necessarily love it that much. And she said, "I'll just wait till the DVD release." So I'll watch it. Oh, during you'll the have to watch. I'll watch it during the Halloween season, and, and uh, that's something we can discuss maybe and just see if it. Uh, did it improve? Did it was it was it like that fine wine? Did it <laughs> age well or? Uh, I don't think it, enough time has passed. <laughs> probably not. Uh, a movie called The Creeping Terror. Are you familiar with that? It, it carries a whopping two stars on IMDb. I, I saw something about it recently and how horrible that was supposed to be. I don't know. Um, the title sounds familiar. But, uh, the time, though, I don't know. Yeah, 1964. It's coming out from Synapse. Uh, we've mentioned this before, but I think all three of these, uh, Shout Factory, A Quiet Place in the Country from 1968, uh, Don't Torture a Duckling from 1972, a, a Fulci film, and Suspicious Death of a Minor from 1975, directed by Sergio Martino. Those are our big horror releases for the month. I assume there's a little lull there because they're going to hammer us in October, I would hope. With releases. I wonder, though, you're getting to a point where what could they release? I mean, you know that Universal could release a lot on Blu-ray, but heaven forbid they actually do anything that makes sense. And I'll have to admit, while I have the, the initial Universal Blu-ray box set, the wonderful coffin set from the UK, I didn't go in and buy the recent Blu-rays. I, there's only so much you can do with these older episodes, uh, movies. And I, you know, I like what I have so far of, of, you know, of most of the universal films. Some of them certainly, some of the lesser known releases could use some, some love and attention, but the chance of those getting, you know, a release 
heck even getting a, a, an official Blu-ray release. There are still some movies like the uh, the Dark Streets of Cairo that that has never been released officially. It's just hard to find some of those lesser-known titles. Uh, that'd be nice if Universal surprised us with that. I'm not going to hold my breath. It would be nice if there was a box set of Hammer films all in, in one collective because, again... We're sitting in my in my media room, and, and I it's something I just finished virtually half an hour before we started recording almost. And one of the things that I've got, I've got so many Hammer, I've got I think almost every Hammer film, Hammer horror film, but they're spread out over so many different sets that it, it's it'd be nice if they would have a Frankenstein Blu-ray set, every Frankenstein film. I don't but know it, if they can ever do that because different studios nah, own them. So too many rights issues and yeah. convoluted. And, and there's there's sets coming out every day overseas that I see. I, I see someone post about them, and I'm like, oh, I go to Amazon, and of course they're not there because they're Hammer in the UK is a lot easier for them to come up because there's the the rights issues were much easier over here. They kept selling the movies to different studios, and that's where it gets very very convoluted. Mm-hmm. I know that, yeah, but we have been getting some good releases. I mean, you know. The Caltiki Blu-ray and the Monster of Piedras Blancas. I mean, there's still some stuff out there that could potentially get released. It's just I would think we would have heard about it by now. Yeah, and I I should have done my research, but you know the Universals are coming back out with the Alex Ross covers. Those are nice covers. Exclusively at Best Buy. Now, I have two of the box sets of the DVDs. I have no Blu-rays. If those are on Blu-ray... That's going to be my excuse to get those. Cause so you don't have, so you fantastic. don't have like Dracula or Frankenstein on Blu-ray. Not on Blu-ray, no. I don't necessarily know if the rest of the films really look that much better, and they pretty much, I think, have most of what you have on the other sets. In my mind, I think like the Legacy collections that they did was probably their best release. That's just my personal opinion. Those had those nice covers the window you know and you were able to get all of the movies in the series you know i've got most i didn't double dip the like the wolfman version which again covered pretty much everything that was in the other sets except for the wolfman i didn't get the the mummy series either but i did get most of the others and those are nice nice sturdy sets and uh they 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 covered all of the wonderful extras and stuff that you get on the other movies uh, other sets so again i don't know you know i mean those those are nice covers alex ross is great but i don't know if it's worth double dipping triple dipping at this point well i i really debated that and thought i would not but it just dawned on me if those are blu-rays and not dvds that's my excuse to get them because I don't have them on Blu-ray. I would definitely recommend if it's if it's the remastered version of Dracula, they did do some good work on that. I, I will admit, but you know, and it is nice to have the the Blu-rays on these. I mean, I have been, I have not kept up with the Hammer Blu-ray releases. Uh, I eventually kind of caved in and said, no, nope, I'm going to stop. There are certainly some that are still on my wish list that I'd like to some television recordings that i have of some of these movies that i'd like to to upgrade interesting to see what we get in october and you think we would know by now they would have announced them but i just somehow feel like they haven't really birthdays for september on the 6th in 1879 max schreck who was was he our first depiction of dracula he was i I don't think there's any version before that no 
Yeah. So I know Nosferatu, classic, classic film, and it's getting played locally three times in the Kansas City area with live music accompaniment. So on one hand, it's unfortunate that there's these three different showings and they're all showing the same movie this year. Uh, there's a, a great showing on the 20th of October at, can't remember the name of the theater, but it's in Ottawa, Kansas. It's the longest continuous running movie theater in the United States. It's a theater I'd, I'd love to, I haven't seen. I would, I've spent on my wish list to go. And the music accompaniment with that is, is Dr. Marvin Falwell from the Kansas City area who does all the music, or not all, but does a lot of the music for the Kansas Silent Film Festival that I go to in Topeka in February. Topeka also does their thing called Silence in the Cathedral, where they play silent movies in a, in a big, grand old church with live music and an evening of, of shorts and cartoons, and they've chosen Nosferatu this year. And then I think it's three or four days later, it's on Halloween, the Kaufman Center in downtown Kansas City. They are presenting Nosferatu with, I can't pronounce her name right now, but a wonderful organist who writes her own score for the movies. And I saw her do Nosferatu three years ago, and it just just is incredibly impressive. So if you're in the Kansas City area, you certainly have three opportunities to see Nosferatu this year, all of which with live music. If you could only choose one, which would you go to? I'm, you know, I was leaning towards the Kaufman Center, but then I kind of went, well, Silence in the Cathedral would be fun. I haven't been to that one. However, when I saw the one pop up in Ottawa, I'm like, this might be my chance to see that grand old theater. And I know that 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 uh, uh, Dr. Marvin Falwell is, is great uh, with the music, and although it might not be an original score, I don't think, uh, it'll still be leaps and bounds better than any uh, release. And it's per- certainly some of the ones I've seen have horrific music to it. Uh, and there's nothing like seeing Nosferatu on the big screen. Hopefully they'll be showing the restored version, uh, the remastered version uh, that I am sad to admit I don't have in my collection, but I, I, it's been on my wish list to get that. I think it's even on Blu-ray now. It's, it's uh, a classic movie. Also on the 6th, but in 1934, and you got to love autocorrect, Paul Nasty, or <laughs> Nashy, as we probably know him, was born. Another great director uh, a day later and six years later, 9-7 of 40, was Dario Argento. Another great director, September 11th, 1940, Brian De Palma. The original Scream Queen, Faye Ray, 9-15-1907. Roddy McDowell, 9-17-1928. Grayson Hall from Dark Shadows, 9-18-1922. James Bernard, great composer of a lot of Hammer films, 920, 1925. H.G. Wells, the 21st in 1886. Stephen King on the 21st in 1947. You want to say what we're going to be doing related to Stephen King? We get a chance to get a sneak preview of a little film you might have heard of called It uh, coming to theaters. As we're recording this, uh, happening what three days uh, less than a week away from the, the wide release. And uh, some of the early reviews I've already seen are calling it. I don't want to hear it. If I hear, I, and I've already heard it. Yes. Yeah, it's supposed to be really good, but 
you're setting expectations. You are. That's that true. If you tell me that one more time, I'm going to like it a little bit less. So just don't even tell me what you've seen. I haven't seen anything on it. Uh, now, are you... All I know is that Richard Thomas is making a... a, a no, I'm kidding. No. Well, you know, I, I did order the It original miniseries Blu-ray, and I do intend to watch it before we go. I hear it does not hold up well. I don't think I've seen it since it was first on. Yeah, but you know, I, I want to watch it, just if anything, just to familiarize myself with the story. It's uh, I, I like it from the nostalgia aspect. Unlike Salem's Lot, which still holds up incredibly well and is the same length, it does come across as, as a bit dated. And I don't know if it's the cast. Um, I think the cast in, in Salem's Lot is better than what we get in, in it. And I think maybe it's seeing John Ritter, and I keep thinking Jack Tripper when I see him. <laughs> there's John Boy. There's uh, Lana Lang from Superman 3. Too many familiar faces for me that kind of pull me out of the moment. But I am curious, when you see it, how, what your thoughts are on it. Uh, yeah. I, I saw it with my son quite a few years ago and he was bored with it and he, and he was wanting to watch it and he said it was just wasn't holding his attention that said i love tim curry well i was gonna say that you know everyone had a fit when they showed the new pennywise because of tim curry but yet apparently they can do that without liking the movie that he was in i mean i guess it's normal. It's, Tim Curry did such an amazing job, but I, I am curious to see what they what they do with this. I, clearly, it's going to be more horrific and scarier than the miniseries because you can do a lot more. And special effects-wise, you can do a lot more. Uh, looking forward to it. The, the thing I remember not liking about the original It, and it's the problem of every single Stephen King TV movie, it's the ending. It's I, I just thought the ending was horrible. The thing I'm worried about with the new It is I'm just think it's going to be like Stranger Things, you know, and it's those trailers not seem clearly were, were were pulling from Stranger Things. Uh, I, I had that same feeling when I saw the the first full length trailer. I'm like, whoa, they, they they've watched Stranger Things, haven't they? Because it was clearly pulling. <laughs> they know how to sell a movie, and that's where you're going to have to to take a step back and realize this was decades before Stranger Things. And I'm and the question is, did Stranger Things pull anything? possibly from the story. Yeah, I think they did. True. Good point. Good point. Our last birthday, our friend Bird Eye Gordon, I say our friend because we met him at Monster Bash. He was born on September 24th in 1922 and still with us today. Not that many big landmark movies came out in September over the years, but the ones that did are iconic. Psycho first came out on September 8th in 1960. The Blob, September 12th of 1958. Day of the Earth Stood Still premiered in New York on September 18th of 1951, and The Haunting, September 18th, 1963. Uh, I do want to say something about The Blob. This reminds me, and again, I failed to say that we are on the Phantom Podcast Network, which you can find at downrightcreepy.com with a lot of other great podcasts. There is a podcast I've listened to called The Horror Cast, and they have started a new sub-podcast uh, that's the horror cast drive-in. And they had their first episode where they did The Blob and them. And that was a fantastic episode. I really recommend you look it up. They had, I think, four people participating. One of them was in L.A. And this was the, the Richard of this podcast because he gave a history of the drive-in theater. 
it was just fantastic. It was really hit all the right spots, was very informative. I just really enjoyed their discussion. They don't do they didn't do so much of the the story as I think they did their likes and their dislikes and then uh, like a final rating of those two movies. What was the name of it again? The Horror Cast and it was Drive-In something. Anyway, look that up on the Phantom Podcast Network. Sounds interesting. Right? And for our TV terror guide this month, uh, really only one thing to note uh, on TCM and again, I think they're probably saving everything from October. But on September 26th, all day long, 5 a.m. to 5 p.m., they're showing classic sci-fi movies. We have From the Earth to the Moon, World Without End, Cosmic Monster, Green Slime, Five Million Years to Earth, Forbidden Planet, and the classic of all classics, Queen of Outer Space. So that's going to be a fantastic day on TCM on September 26th. Sounds like a good time. Had by all, or will be. Yes, yes. So, I think I'm about talked out, but we best do some plugs for anything we've got going on. What do you have going on, Richard? You know, I, I have to, to sadly admit that over at Kansas City uh, Cinephile that uh, my, my intentions of, of the Hitchcock journey and the sci-fi horror fest, I had to put them on hold. Life was getting busy. I was feeling a bit overwhelmed. So, I will simply say that uh, I intend to continue with my plans. Hitchcock journey is going to happen. It's, it's going to continue. Um, I'm just not going to set a timeline for it. So I haven't done anything on that, but, uh, the intent is that I will eventually kind of throw some sporadic things in there as well as I've got a list of movies that were going to be part of this sci-fi horror fest. And I'm going to continue with that. I'm going to review, uh, continue to review those movies. I'm going to watch them anyway. So I might as well review them. Uh, other than that, I've just been busy with podcasts. Uh, I, I've done a lot of reviews recently over at uh, Dread Media, so that's coming up as we speak. Uh, I'm, we're, I think we're in the middle of, of uh, a bunch of reviews that I've done. I'll be doing a couple of uh, more, uh, some certainly more off-the-wall films. In September, you'll be hearing my review on Mr. No Legs and a film called What the Peeper Saw. Uh, with Britt Eklund. So that's going to be coming up in September. And uh, uh, as well, you know, I'm doing a segment for the Mimiverse monthly audio cast. I just recorded a uh, thoughts on the passing of Toby Hooper. And so uh, life is good. I'm busy in the podcast world. Uh, and of course, we, we did just recently lose Richard Anderson. Uh, I posted uh, my thoughts on that. He's part of my childhood. Six million dollar man was one of those shows for me that growing up it was Star Trek and the Six Miller Man were probably my two most favorite shows. And uh, sadly, I did not, I never got a chance to meet Richard Anderson. I did meet Lee Majors and Lindsey Wagner. Uh, the one year Richard Anderson was at Trek Expo down in Tulsa uh, was one year, one of the few years that I did not attend and I didn't get a chance to meet him. And sadly he passed away, but he was 91. He lived a very long life. And was still doing conventions up until, I think, very, very recently. So um, that's what's going on in my neck of the woods. Did you see that picture of uh, Steve Turek with Richard Anderson from I did. the Mid-Atlantic? That was nice. I, I did. Was I that did. last year? Uh, it looked fairly recent, yeah. I think, uh, like I said, he was still very, really good health. He was. I saw a panel that he did with Lee Majors and Lindsey Wagner on YouTube, and I want to say it was within the last maybe 
year or two because they did kind of do a reunion thing and when they released all of the uh, the series on DVDs and and uh, he was soft spoken but he was and he was you could tell that he was he was you know a little slower at the mic but uh, once he got into his story he could still reminisce and of course I. I think I was first introduced watching him probably on the Big Valley. I was a huge Big Valley fan. I still watch it. It's, I'm, I do watch things other than horror sometimes. I'm an old Western fan, and that's a series I love. I love Scott Lee Majors in it, and that's actually how we met Lee Majors. So, uh, yeah, Richard Anderson is another piece of my childhood gone this year, unfortunately. And I want to compliment you on your posts uh, about like Richard Anderson and. I admire that you do that when something like that happens. That's that's something I don't seem to do, and uh, I, I I think that's nice. I enjoy reading those. I, the ones that I hope that, more people don't die so that you do that. But uh, <laughs> well, and I don't do it for everyone. Like I, I I didn't really do it for George Romero, Toby Hooper, but I did do that for the Mimiverse one. It, to me, both of those those directors made films that were. Um, kind of a symbolic of the end of classic horror and moving horror into a whole new direction, which is kind of what I tied into when I, I talked about it on, on the Memiverse Monthly audio cast. I, you know, I recently wrote about Jerry Lewis because we lost him as well. And uh, that was certainly tying into the movie that I so desperately hope that I get to see someday in my life, the day the clown cried. Technically, there is a print of it, or as much of it as as could be uh, was finished at the time. It is in the hands of the Library of Congress, and and it could see the light of day in 2025, which is only eight years away. How we get a chance to see it, I question whether or not it'll be anything more than a screening. I don't think they could ever do a DVD release. There's way too many convoluted rights issues, but. Uh, that's something I, I desperately want to see. There was a fan edit that was put together taking all of the footage that's... There's a lot of footage from that movie's come out in the last you know five years, and someone did put together as much of a... a, a it was, I mean, I don't think it was... It was, certainly wasn't the length of a movie, but it was an approximation of what the film would look like. And it was on Vimeo for a while. They pulled it down because they were afraid that they would... Although they did not hear from anyone's lawyers... Someone said, you know Jerry Lewis is going to get after you, and he, they pulled it down. So uh, I didn't know that there's something out there that exists, but the person did pull it down. So that's something I, I felt like writing about, because that's a movie that's fascinated me for years, and maybe someday we'll get a chance to see it. Hope so. So over at uh, ClassicHorrors.club, by the, well, no, not by the time you hear this, but before our next podcast, uh, October will have started, and I am going to participate in the Countdown to Halloween again. And that's basically, there. there is a, a site, Countdown to Halloween, that just sort of aggregates or compiles all the different blogs and, and websites that want to participate in this Countdown to Halloween. In the past several years that I've done it, I've been able to crank out a, a review every day. I plan to do that again this year, and uh, my theme is going to be Around the World. I'm going to watch some foreign horror movies that I've been wanting to watch for a long time. Some that I've probably already seen, but looking forward to doing that. We're reviewing It, like Richard said, for Downright Creepy and Boom Howdy. It depends. We may each do a review, uh, and they'll be on the different sites, but if by chance we have a drastically differing opinion of it, we may sort of combine it into sort of a point-counterpoint type thing, in which I can say, Richard, you ignorant slut. <laughs> 
I think we can both agree that it has to be better, a better Stephen King adaptation than The Dark Tower. Well, one would hope. You one would hope. One yes. would hope. We'll leave it yes. at that. Other than that, I guess I don't have anything to report. Again, check out the, the YouTube channel. I think you'll find some cool Dark Shadows videos there. Let's tell people how to, to get hold of us. We'd like some more feedback. Again, thank you, Christopher and Steve. But uh, the phone number is 616-649-CLUB, 616-649-2582. Or you can record an MP3 or send an email to classichorrors.club at gmail.com. Find Richard and I on Facebook. Pretty easy these days to find. Classic Horrors has Twitter, Facebook, even Pinterest and YouTube, like we mentioned. You want to say your websites again, Richard? Yeah, monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. And then everything I do is at Kansas City Cinephile. That's kccinephile.com. There's always something on Facebook and takes you to the link, so it's pretty easy to find as well. And I posted a lot of the various uh, horror podcast sites as well. So. All right. Well, it's been a great episode. Thanks again for talking about Dark Shadows. We will watch we got to talk shows. about what we're doing next oh, month. yeah. I guess, yeah, we are going to do another podcast. <laughs> yes, this is not the end, folks. We do, just a sneak peek, we kind of talked about the Mimiverse, Christopher Mim. Well, we are going to dive in and do a few films because we are going to be going to the premiere, the world premiere of his new film, Demon with the Atomic Brain which does feature a character by the last name of Chamberlain who dies before the movie even really gets started. That will be coming up uh, the first week of October. We'll be heading north to Minnesota and uh, get a chance to see that. In celebration of that, we're going to be talking about a couple movies from uh, the uh, the long list now of films from the Mimiverse. We're going to be covering Attack of the Moon Zombies and The House of Ghosts. And we will be... I think talking about some of the other films that we've seen as well. And won't be giving any spoilers away about the new movie, but we'll certainly be talking about our experience at the premiere. So that's next month is a Mimiverse episode celebrating uh, our friend Christopher R. Mim. Yes. Did, have you seen the trailer yet for Demon with the Atomic Brain? I have. I have. It, I uh, only watched it today. I, I kind of didn't want to watch it. I don't know why. I wanted to be surprised, I guess. But it looks cool. I... I see very little of a demon with an atomic brain. There's a lot of other cool monster stuff, so those jellyfish things floating in the you trees. You see the one the creature in the back that kind of is shifting around yeah. a little bit. I, uh, we, you know, we know Mitch Gonzalez, special effects guy, is going to do something that's going to be fun. So, and it seems like they've had a lot of fun making this one. So, uh, I mean, I'm looking forward to. You it. know what my hope for it is because it is, and you can get this a little bit in the trailer. It's sort of a I don't know if it's time travel, but they're sort of jumping around and maybe to different dimensions or times. It does seem like that, yeah. I want them to to pop into the other movies and and visit and and have references to the other movies in the Mimiverse. Well, you know that they take a lot of the characters do do cross over from film to film, so you got to know that there there could very well be some of that because all of the films in the Mimiverse are all connected in one way or another. Uh, whether it's in this, it's all they all take place in the same world, and so uh, yeah, that's that's a wish that could very well happen. That'd be cool. All right, so now we leave you with the words, the last words you would have heard if you watched Dark Shadows on that final day when it aired its final episode. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you in about a month. Take care, everyone. <laughs>
was no vampire loose on the great estate. For the first time at Collingwood, the marks on the neck were indeed those of an animal. Melanie soon recovered and went to live in Boston with her beloved Kendrick. There they prospered and had three children. Bramwell and Catherine were soon married and at Flora's insistence, stayed on at Collingwood, where Bramwell assumed control of the Collins' business interests. Their love became a living legend, and for as long as they lived, the dark shadows at Collingwood were but a memory of the distant past. 